Welcome, everyone, to episode 32 of Some Like It, Scott, part of the Media Plug Podcast Network. I'm your host, Scott Shelton, and with me today, I have my co-host, Scott Harvey. Scott, we have uh, a lot of movies to talk about in a less traditional form for our podcast this week. We're talking about you know all the movies that were at last weekend's uh, Oscars show, and then we're going to be talking about the movies that we're most excited about coming out in 2019, but we're not reviewing any movies today. But before we get to any of that, though, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Scott. As you can imagine, I'm riding pretty high right now. Uh, We waited to record this until after the basketball game that occurred today uh, between Tennessee and Kentucky. I know, I guess it was the last time we recorded that I was talking about the game that was going to happen at Rupp Arena. I'd rather, that's that's all I have to say about that game. But today's game, of course, they had the rematch in Knoxville at, at TBA and Balls ran them out of the gym. So, uh, I mean, the the season series is even now, so I'm hoping for a, uh, you know, big-time game in the SEC tournament, maybe in the championship again like last year. Hey, that, that'd be great. Uh, I'm thoroughly unsurprised that that's what happened. Uh, yeah. I, I, I mean, I even thought that would happen in the first game, too, to be fair. But, yeah, no, it didn't surprise me. I have been to a, a, a game in TBA before where that exact thing happened, and it often happens, especially, you know, Fun, this year. right? <laughs> well, it's... It, it's it's fun for Tennessee fans. Yes. <laughs> you know, that, just like it would be, right. it was fun for, for uh, Kentucky fans a few weeks ago. Yes, that that is true. And, but I mean, of course you got LSU in there too, who they're looking tough. They beat both Tennessee and Kentucky. So, uh, you know, are they, they undefeated in the SEC? No, they have two losses as well, but it's a three horse race, not, not just a two horse race. Well, yeah, I, I feel like they're flying kind of under the radar, but that being said, I'm also not following college basketball that closely because they, they are rising up the rankings. Yeah, they're at number 13. They they won today against, I forget, Alabama. They won at Alabama. So My understanding is Alabama's not that good this year, so not surprised. Yeah, always hard to win road games in your conference, though. Very true, uh, as, as both Tennessee and Kentucky can, can attest. Yes, definitely so. All right, Scott. Well, like I mentioned already, we have the Oscars and uh, the movies of 2019 that we're most excited about ahead of us today. Uh, No better place to start but last weekend's 91st Oscars hosted at the Dolby in L.A. Scott, Scott, you know, uh, well, I don't know if I mentioned it on the podcast last time we recorded, but I was not able to watch the Oscars live. I was furiously refreshing Twitter on (laughs) on a bus that I was on and and following it just as closely as everyone else. But you actually got a a unique experience, uh, not just watching it, but watching it in a theater that was pretty full from what I hear. Yeah, I did. It was it was awesome. Uh, I I was really looking forward to this ever since I uh, heard about it a few months ago. I actually really heard about it last year, but didn't go because of the prices. But this year they had a student ticket and and the local independent cinema here in Winston-Salem, Aperture. I, I've uh, tooted their horn before. It's it's a wonderful place. They uh, they hosted a red carpet party. It's sort of their annual fundraiser because they are a nonprofit. And they had had a red carpet party for the Oscars. And, you know, we dressed up fancy. I went with a couple of friends and they had a, you know, open bar and stuff, food, games and stuff like that. And but then, yeah, the highlight was, of course, getting to sit in one of the theaters and watch the uh, the Academy Awards, which I mean, you know, I, I always there's always things in the Academy Awards that make me mad. And we'll we'll get to some of those. But 
I have to say, I think I got a little bit less mad considering, you know, I was sitting there, there were free drinks at, at about oh, 10 p.m. or something. One of the theater employees just walked in with a bunch of boxes of pizza and just walked up to us and was like, are y'all guys doing pizza? And I was like, well, heck yeah, if you're here with it, I mean, absolutely. So, I mean, I can't, it was an ideal viewing experience and I, and I look forward to going back next year. So it definitely made things more enjoyable than they probably otherwise would have been. Dang, that sounds really awesome. Uh, maybe I'll fly down next year, go with you guys. Yeah, I, I mean, never I heard love anything that. like that. I've never heard anything like that for around here, but maybe I should look into the, There's there are a couple indie theaters in Boston. Maybe they do something like that. Yeah, maybe so. I don't. I mean, I I never really heard about anything like that either. It, it is unique, but I mean, they they sold all of their allotted tickets, so it was it was very popular. Yeah, I mean, and and why not? Because you know, in spite of the Oscars' attempts to foil themselves, it still is it still is the the biggest night in Hollywood for a lot of people. And their ratings were up this year. I mean, I think they they played themselves in a way. Like, I think the fact that so much controversy happened and like caused people to actually want to see what you know, what was going to go on. So I think, in fact, all of their cockamamie ways that they were trying to get viewers and then eventually like rescinded them, actually, it ended up getting them more viewers, ironically. Yeah, maybe they all planned it that way. Who knows? Yeah, who knows? Well, regardless of planning, the Oscars happened. Uh, You know, there were fewer points of frustration for for you, at least. and, And for me, I think that's that probably was about right, but I think we probably will talk about the biggest winners first, and it, it just so happens that we're, the biggest winners were probably the largest points of frustrations for us, so we're going to get out the bat early and then talk about the good later, maybe. But first, biggest winner of the night is kind of a coin flip between two movies, but no better place to start than Best Picture winner, and that, and that is Green Book. Scott, what do you think of this? Yeah, I mean, I, I this was the point where I uh, reached my boiling point, but luckily it was the end of the uh, evening. So I, I, as soon as they announced the, uh, you know, the winner of Best Picture, my friends who went with me, they'll tell you that I stood up, stormed out of the theater, and walked straight to my car. So it's, I think, because I had enjoyed a lot of the the show up until then, and you know, they'd made fairly good choices across the board. That this came as such a such a disappointment at the end. Not because Green Book was a bad movie, you know, we reviewed it on actually well, so no one out there will probably know because it was our lost episode on which we reviewed Green Book. But we both liked the movie and we both, you know, gave it a positive review. It's it's definitely a solid film and if you go to my Twitter and social media and stuff, I've I've said a little bit more about, you know, why I think this when is so disappointing, not not because of the quality of the film necessarily, but because I think forward it doesn't move forward the narrative on race in the way that other movies in the category did. I mean, two movies there, uh, you know, Black Panther and Black Klansman both did that. I mean, you could even throw Roma in there, honestly, for you know what it did for Hispanic representation. I think, and so to see a movie like a very again a very safe choice. It was of the eight nominees. It was probably the most Oscar baity movie of the of the pack. It's just disappointing to see the Academy go with an extremely safe choice when other things in the night and other things in the recent years have suggested that they are moving forward. They are trying to encourage more diversity. But I think most people would agree that, you know, that this is definitely a step back, you know, that as much as they may have taken a step forward, they they took multiple steps back by choosing Green Book. And But, you know, it, I guess the consolation is that the fact that Roma didn't win Best Picture is how we actually know that it was, in fact, the Best Picture of of twenty eighteen. So, yeah, it does apply to a lot of years. That at least my personal best favorite pictures of the year don't commonly win Best Picture, and you know, yeah, so so be it. That's okay. Uh, it's still 
like you said, to your point, it's not that it's a bad film. It's not that it's not it's like it's vice or anything like that. But I totally agree with, you know, I saw your thread on Twitter about this. And really, I think it really gets to the point that it's a safe film. It's it is the most Oscar Beatty movie of, of the lot, I think. And on in on that point, it, it's just really good from a it's you know, it's well directed. It's really well acted. Its story is is there. But it's only really there on the surface. And when you dig a little bit deeper and you think about where we are contextually in in society, especially when you have a movie that's so I think you can so directly compare to Green Book and Black Klansman in terms of what it. Yes, it's not really capturing the same racial message at all, really, but it is it is a conversation or it is a conversation starter, maybe is a better way to put it about race. And I'm not saying that black Klansmen should have won over green book or anything like that. Everyone who listens to our podcast knows that we think that Roma should have won, but it just doesn't, it just doesn't do it for me. And, you know, it's not going to be bottom of my list of best pictures, um, but it's, it's comfortably in the middle. And, and I think that's kind of where it belonged. And it's unfortunate to see it rise to the top. Yeah. And to not bury some of the other leads as well. Like I am troubled by, the Nick Vallelonga tweets, and I am troubled by Dr. Shirley's family's accusations. I mean, uh, the controversy as well, I think, contributes to the general feeling of distaste that I, I got from, uh, you know, the fact that Green Book won. I, I, I just think the Academy maybe should have been more sensitive to to some of these things that happen. If not, I, you know, if not for Best Picture, then certainly in the best original screenplay um, category, which of course did go to Green Book as well. And, you know, there Nick Vallelonga more directly winning and, and was making a speech on the stage. So I think there is kind of where I think the Oscars should have gone a different way. But in general, I mean, those, those, I, I definitely am troubled by those stories. And I think that contributes to my feeling about this winning best picture as well. We felt like with the, all the backlash from award shows like the Golden Globes that, you wouldn't see the Academy um, pick pick movies like Green Book and like Bohemian Rhapsody, which we're going to talk about in a second, as their big winners, just because there was a lot of backlash seen from the goal on Twitter. But uh, at the end of the day, you know, there there were people out there saying that you know it's a fundamental misunderstanding if you think Academy voters ultimately care about what's on Twitter when they're in the voting booth or when they're filling out their ballots, because I mean it's not really a voting booth. But ultimately, what it came down to is that, you know, you have people voting for Bohemian Rhapsody and voting for Green Book. If not, of course, there is the whole complication of the pre- the preferential ballot where you do a ranked form of voting. And, and, and we don't need to get into that on the podcast. But it, I mean, it is entirely possible that, you know, only a small minority of people put Green Book as their top uh, movie of 20 of 2018. But if a lot of people were having it second and third, then that's where you know, it can win. Uh, at the end of the day. But that being said, it's it's clear that Green Book resonated with a lot of people. And that's not surprising. It resonated with me. It it made me like when I walked out of the theater, I felt good after watching it. And that speaks to uh, the impact of the movie. It's only afterwards, I think, when you sit with it a little bit longer. And for some people, that might be five minutes, that might be 10 minutes. For other people, it might be a couple days, might be weeks. But I think afterwards is when I started to, you know, kind of wrestle with with how safe it was and and how and the particular narrative that it crafted and hearing all the stories that came out of it where I began to question it a little bit more. And it's unfortunate that it doesn't appear that the Academy questioned it uh, at the same level that, you know, you or I did and, and a lot of other people that I've seen on Facebook and Twitter. But like I to, to bring it back full circle, you know, at the end of the day, maybe Academy voters don't care what's on Twitter and what's on social media. And, and I don't know if there's anything wrong with that, but it, it does kind of ring true here. On the other hand, I think, you know, you could say that maybe 
the fact that there was such backlash on Twitter, you know, the the this is why Trump won theory, uh, for lack of a better, you know, way of, of of categorizing it. Like the fact that so many people were coming out, you know, speaking against Bohemian Rhapsody and Green Book in the strongest terms, you know, might have made some Academy voters who you know, we're sitting at home thinking, well, hey, I like these movies might have made them defend them more and maybe, you know, put them in that number one slot when they might not have done that before all of the backlash. So maybe, you know, the the sort of rabble rousing that was going on on Twitter was actually what's prompted people to bump Green Book, bump Bohemian Rhapsody to the top. But I do agree with what you're saying. And, and like, to be clear, no one should feel bad about liking Green Book. Like it, it was, it's a solid movie. It has a good message, and I think maybe that's getting lost in all of the, you know, the backlash coming out of this. But you shouldn't feel bad about liking Green Book. And I just wonder if maybe the fact that some people were made to feel bad about it is what led to it winning. Hey, that, I mean, yeah, that's that's a great point. It's totally possible. And yes, I don't think you should feel bad for liking the movie, but I do think Academy voters should feel bad for voting it, voting for it, because. To to go back all the way to your original point, I think it, it if you're if you're promoting a film as the best film of 2018, uh, it doesn't matter how much you like Green Book. In my opinion, I, I think that it's just not the best movie of 2018, and that's not because I didn't like it. But yeah. I, I think at this point we might be being a little bit repetitive. And so to talk about our other point of frustration, which has already kind of come up a little bit here when we we're talking about this, but Bohemian Rhapsody, the biggest winner on the night in terms of number of awards, it took home. Four awards, of course, for the unsurprisingly for the best actor, Remy Malik, winning for his role as Freddie Mercury. And then it took home film editing uh, and both sound editing and sound mixing. Scott, what are your thoughts on this? Well, once again, I don't think you should feel bad about liking Bohemian Rhapsody. There were definitely parts of it that both of us enjoyed. Uh, now, Vice, on the other hand, if you enjoyed it, I think you should really look, take a long look at yourself in the mirror and question, you know, what what direction your life is heading in. But as far as Bohemian Rhapsody goes, you know, I think this was an interesting year in the technical categories because there wasn't a movie like Dunkirk last year where we thought, well, that's just going to take them all. Like it, it was clearly like the front runner in all of the technical categories. And it did end up taking, you know, pretty much all of them. Maybe The Shape of Water got like one or two maybe, but uh, it, it was pretty much a Dunkirk sweep. But this year, there wasn't a movie like that. I mean, you had, on one hand, you had First Man, which obviously very technically impressive movie, but one that didn't resonate with a lot of audiences. You know, you had movies like Avengers in the visual effects category, which, you know, I think a lot of people obviously were wowed by the visual effects in that movie. A Star is Born, also in the technical categories. You know, I think maybe that the, this battle came down to, the, the battle in the trenches came down to these two, the two music-based movies. And... A Star is Born was definitely the loser, and Bohemian Rhapsody was definitely the winner. Um, and I think, you know, one of the reasons for this may be, this is something I heard, I think it was Jacqueline Coley from Rotten Tomatoes talking about, that for these technical categories, a lot of Adam Academy of Voters are basically sent one or two scenes from the movie to, to vote based on that. And so I think maybe it was a product of a lot of people got the Live Aid scene. And so, yeah, of course they picked Bohemian Rhapsody for sound mixing and sound editing and even film editing. Like, yes, people have pointed out how bad the editing is in Bohemian Rhapsody on Twitter. And I don't like disagree with that. But the editing in the Live Aid sequence is really good. And if that's all some of these voters saw, then it's I guess I guess it's understandable like why they went with it. But I think, you know, I didn't like the movie, so it, I, I would have liked to see A Star is Born, you know, tip the scale on these awards. 
I uh, think an alternative theory to the one you're positing, which I, I, that's interesting. I, I didn't hear that. That's actually how people voted on this. But uh, of course, the, the nominations are done by the individual guilds, and then the final voting is done by the entire academy. At some point, I wonder, just you know, when you're voting on these awards for these technical categories, which I'm going to be honest, Scott, I've read explainers, I've read it, and, and sound editing and sound mixing. Although I think I understand it now, it's like takes a little bit of time to like fully appreciate what it is, and I wonder how many people not in the, you know, sound editing and sound mixing guild of the Oscars and the film editing guild of the Oscars really have like a, a true appreciation or understanding of what all these categories mean. And I'm not saying that, you know, Academy voters are idiots, because I think these are actually like pretty nuanced categories that are like often difficult to understand and appreciate as you watch a movie. It's obviously, or I should at least speaking for myself, it's not, it's not something that is immediately apparent to me when I watch a movie for the first time, or if I'm just like, you know, sitting in a movie theater and, and enjoying what I'm watching, I'm not thinking about these things. And maybe that's my, maybe that's my own fault, but I wonder how many people are just voting for their favorite movie in these categories. Um, and you know, I'm, I don't necessarily, Oh, go ahead. In the in the case of Bohemian Rhapsody, maybe they're voting for their favorite band instead. Sure. You know, maybe they're saying, "Oh, I love Queen's music, so let's vote for that in the sound because Queen's music sounds great." Yeah, I think that's totally possible, right? I think that, um, that that's a big part of it. That's why it doesn't surprise me if it did come down to Bohemian Rhapsody and A Star Is Born for. I mean, for sound mixing, sound editing, A Star Is Born wasn't in there, but you know, of course, Black Panther was also in there, so maybe that takes a knock against my argument of like, you know, most what's your favorite film, but I don't think black Panther was something that was, was hyped up about the sound mixing and sound editing. So when it, there might be some filtration process like, Oh, I've heard, I've heard. And it makes sense to me that the, like X movie and X movie of the nominees are good at sound editing and sound mixing. And, you know, I like Bohemian Rhapsody more and I can't really think of a reason why X movie was better in terms of sound. So I'm just going to go with this movie. I, I'm not going to belittle the Academy process and, and, harp on this point anymore because it's total speculation but i could also foresee a situation where you have like 75 percent of the academy not necessarily understanding because it's very convoluted and nuanced uh, the differences between some of these things uh, fully understanding it and it's probably why you often see the winner being the same between sound editing and sound mixing uh, there like you said to again kind of close the loop on this there are moments and if they are receiving only a couple scenes for these sort of categories i mean there are moments where Bohemian Rhapsody is very, very enjoyable. Live Aid yeah. being, you know, the the most easy to point to. In that. Definitely. And uh, Remy Malik, you know, I say what I will about his best actor performance. You know, I think that there were at least a couple people more deserving than him. I would have gone with Bradley Cooper personally, but Tom he, he, yeah, I mean, I work with what I'm given in terms of nominations. Yes, but you know, he did become Freddie Mercury. I'm, I'm not going to belittle his process of becoming that, but. I do think that other people did more. I think that even Christian Bale winning, I know Scott, you don't like the movie vice, but like Christian Bale's performance is, is pretty spectacular. I think it's better than Remy Malek's and Bradley Cooper. If you're comparing, you know, singers, of course, Freddie as eccentric as he is. Uh, and, and you know, I, I'm not questioning the difficulty of taking on, uh, such a persona that's, you know, so world renowned, so revered, um, and known for its eccentricity. And that, you know, that takes a lot from it for an actor. I'm not, I'm not, talking down about that but you know bradley cooper making a character his own and in, in, a, in a role that didn't seem familiar to me when a lot of bradley cooper's roles often feel samey uh, i thought that he did something different and then uh, you know obviously learning how to play the guitar learning how to sing i just think it was a really wonderful performance um but that being said robbie malik still probably exceeded the bar that is required to win this award i just don't think he was the best 
Yeah, and John Cho didn't get nominated at all, and he was better than all of them. However, I will say he did get nominated at the Independent Spirit Awards, and I don't know if you saw the winners and the nominees for the Spirit Awards, but I really think we should be recapping them instead of the Oscars right now. <laughs> I mean, maybe we'll do a special episode. There you go. All right. Uh, third big winner uh, of the of the night. <laughs> you know, I say Roma, I could just say Alfonso Cuaron because, you know, he took home – Three awards, uh, you know, he took home an award for uh, cinematography, for direction, and then his entire team and the country of Mexico took home the award for best foreign language film. Yeah, I mean, of course, we were very happy to see this. I mean, a great moment for a brilliant director um, to see his passion project take home these awards. And, you know, as I and others pointed out, Five of the last six best director winners are Mexican. You know, you had Inari two winning twice. You had Cuaron winning twice, and you had Del Toro last year. So pretty awesome. Yeah, I mean this this movie, of course, deserved all three of those awards, in my opinion. Um, I, I I really think you know, although you know, I, I really love the cinematography in A Star Is Born. I think I would have had a, had a bit of an issue if if this had not gone to Roma and. You know, I, I felt like Roma was trending upwards, and so I was optimistic going into Best Picture. But you know, Oscars always gonna gonna let me down. But I don't think that the fact that it didn't take home Best Picture should should take away from what Roma achieved. Because honestly, in the end, it's kind of crazy that we were sitting there thinking about that a Spanish language black and white movie, Netflix movie, was going to take home Best Picture, and still took home three awards. So pretty awesome for Alfonso Cuarón, nevertheless. Yeah. And, you know, there, of course, it was nominated or at least tied for the most nominations. We didn't think that they had a realistic chance for about half of those. But the fact that it did take home three and, you know, I have no idea how close it was to taking home best picture, but, you know, was in the conversation for taking home the biggest award of the night speaks volumes. And, you know, I don't know if the Netflix uh, bias is up yet at the Academy. We're going to see this year with more. Uh, Oscar Beatty movies, shall we say, in the form of primarily The Irishman, I believe. If that movie ends up being good, we've heard it's going to get a theatrical release. You know, it, it'll be in the conversation, much to the chagrin of Steven Spielberg. But it, we'll we'll see how good it is and if it if it does enter the conversation. But th- I mean, this is a big step for Netflix and a big step for foreign language films. But maybe ultimately, we'll see if that continues over a large number of years because maybe it's a Quaron thing more than anything. Yeah, again, one step forward, two steps back. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. I loved Roma. Uh, you can see about 30 of our other 31 episodes that we've done on this podcast for our how much we love Roma. Okay, obviously not that many, but we've talked yeah. about it a lot, and we we really love it. Yeah, la- last big one of the night, and, and I was kind of surprised by this, Scott. I'm not going to lie. I, you know, I did predict it to win a couple awards, but the number of awards it took home surprised me, and that's Black Panther. Scott, uh, you know, it, it had its, uh, what I would say, expected win for best costume design for Ruth Carter uh, for, for the costumes in black Panther. I think that one for me was kind of the given if it was going to win an award. And then it still took home uh, best production design. It upset the favorite uh, for best production design. And then it also upset in the best original score category. I would say that upsetting Nicholas Bratel and Terrence Blanchard, I, I, I would argue uh, in that category. And then of course the, <laughs> you know, the not nominated uh, first man score by, Oh my goodness, the name is forgetting is Justin escaping Hurwitz. me right now. Justin Hurwitz, yeah. So it upset quite a few people, of course, one of which wasn't in the in, in the nominations. But it's got three awards for Black Panther. It didn't take home any of the major awards, not surprisingly, I should say. But do we feel like the superhero curse is done with these award wins for Black Panther? Uh, I don't know that I would go that far, but I think it's definitely a step in the right direction. And honestly, you know, you say that 
set design was an upset for Black Panther. And, you know, maybe maybe it was just based on how the way the odds makers were shaking things out. But honestly, I don't know how you could look at Black Panther and not say that it is absolutely deserving of, of course, costume design for Ruth Carter, but also Hannah Beachler sets the way that that movie uh, you know, created a whole new world that be- literally became a household name. Like Wakanda is a household name now, and it's because of the work of Ruth Carter, Hannah Beachler, and and uh, Ludwig Göransson, for that matter, who who of course won for best original score. I mean, ha- hats off to them. They definitely created one of the most immersive worlds in recent recent movies. So I, I think it feels mm-hmm. right to see them take home these awards. Hey, you say that, but like. As Jeff Snyder would say from Collider, I think that the Academy loves period porn, like <laughs> Shape of Water. That's a period piece. You know, La La Land, it's a period piece. Whether you like it or not, it, it still is a period piece. Grand Budapest Hotel, period piece. Great Gatsby, period piece. You know, all these winners of this award. Lincoln, period piece. Like it's, it's it, it wouldn't have been surprising. I do think, even though I also predicted that Black Panther would win this category, I do think it's an upset of the favorite. Yeah, I mean, you know, I didn't go as far into the Snyder versus you, but maybe so. <laughs> I don't have the Snidey senses like the yeah, Snyder, but but let's see. Uh, that you know, those are the big winners. I I thought it was great. I'm in your camp. I don't think this breaks the superhero curse. I don't think you're going to see Endgame nominated for Best Picture next year, even if it is. You know, even if it got a hundred on Rotten Tomatoes, which of course it probably won't, no. uh, just because that's such a lofty score. I still think there's a lot of bias, and I think that Black Panther getting nominated and winning awards justifiably so very deserving in my opinion is a lot to do with the cultural context of the movie and that's not to demean the movie at all i just think that the academy is is not is not nominating this because it's a superhero movie it's nominating this because of how empowering a film it is um Mm -hmm. and and rightfully so but i just don't think it gets over the hump for superhero movies specifically yeah it was so unique that it's it's hard to even think of it as a superhero movie yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right, Scott, you know, there are other notable winners in the night. Wouldn't call them necessarily the, the big winners just because they have, you know, limited ability to take home awards. But one of those is another superhero movie. It's got one of our favorite movies, both of our number twos, actually, from 2018. And that's Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse winning Best Animated Feature, Scott. It happened. I don't know if you actually ended up predicting The Incredibles 2, which I just think was ridiculous that you actually predicted The Incredibles 2. But uh, I'm sure you're thrilled about this. Okay, it is not ridiculous, first of all. Like, I, I think that my case was very well supported with historical and anecdotal evidence. But, uh, I, I mean, of course, I was thrilled to see this. I mean, when I saw either Phil Lord or Chris Miller, one of them, tweet out, you know, the picture of the actual Oscar next to the Lego Oscar. I mean, you, you know that there were a few tears that came to my eyes when I saw that just because it felt like vindication for one of the greatest snubs in Oscar history, um, Lego movie not getting nominated. And just seeing Phil Lord and Chris Miller up there on the stage accepting the awards, it, it, it was it was great because every single piece of work that they put out has been absolutely ahead of its time and like fantastic and, and so enjoyable. And so I think, you know, the long overdue, even, you know, though they've only been making movies for five or six years now. And so, yeah, very awesome, even though not the way that I thought it would shake out. Yeah. You know, everything indicated that this movie had was, well, one, actually, I don't know if it was more successful at the box office. I was about to say that, but I'm not actually sure that that's true. I think that's actually very much not true now that I'm thinking about it. Uh, But in terms of it was critically more success in the movie. I think that all the hype around the production uh, and and, you know, the animation style, the voice acting, you go down the list. It's better on all accounts than The Incredibles 2. Yes. 
history says that the Academy might disregard this and, you know, whether or not the Lego movie should have won is a conversation that we're not having here on the podcast. I am of course in your camp uh, firmly, but you know, maybe, maybe there could be arguments for the Lego movie not winning that year. We won't entertain those on this podcast, of course, because that would be offensive to you. And we won't entertain those on any podcast, just to be clear. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, you know, to me, this is just there. It wasn't even close. I mean, I have no idea how close the voting was. Maybe Spider-Verse won by one vote and I'm making I'm being like super hyperbolic for compared to what actually happened. But this movie was just miles better than the Incredibles too. Yeah. I mean, it is miles better than the Incredibles too. Like I'm not arguing at that, but that's not always the deciding factor. But hey, you know what? In the end, it won. We we're both happy. Yeah. Now I just can't wait for uh, the next the next ones that come out. I don't know how long it's going to take them to make a, either a Spider Gwen movie or a sequel to this. But you know they have the technology to hop multiverses thanks to that post credit scene. So let's get hopping. Yeah. I'll be there when how, however long it may take. Oh, yeah, absolutely. All right, another big winner, Scott. A movie that I actually ca- that I actually caught the night before the Oscars. Finally, it's been on my list to watch for a few months. Though I was a little bit slow in the uptake from getting all the initial buzz around this movie when it first came out, and that's the documentary Free Solo. Yeah, this movie absolutely blew my mind. Like I also watched it shortly before the Oscars. We'll talk about it a little bit more in a little bit more detail on a future episode, uh, uh, roundup episode that we're going to do soon, but. I have not stopped thinking about this movie ever since I saw it. I do think it was the best documentary of last year. So like, I'm so excited to see it win. not, not just for what, you know, that the actual climb that Alex Honnold performs at the end, you know, the, the way that they shot that and just the sheer breathtaking, like value of w- watching him do this whole 3000 foot climb, uh, without any gear on, like, I watched the last 20 minutes through my fingers, like not ashamed to say, even though, you know, you know how it's going to come out, but also like the way that they tell his own story, like they, they, they tell the story of Alex Honnold as a person as well. And I think what is going on in his, you know, life off the mountain, so to speak, is just as fascinating as what's going on on the mountain. And I think that it, it made for a really interesting and unique documentary that I, I think tells a, a lot more well-rounded story than perhaps I expected. And yeah, I, I can't praise it highly enough. And I, I love to see it win. Yeah. I don't know if I'd say it was the best documentary of last year. Cause I think, I do think three identical strangers is still better, but in terms of my enjoyment factor, Oh my goodness. I loved this documentary. I am obsessed with it. Like I haven't rewatched it yet because it's just so tense, but I've watched like so many interviews of Honold since I watched it. Yeah. I watched his Ted talk. I've like watched a couple other like videos related to him doing other free soloing before he did El Cap, things like that. And, and yeah, I watched, I actually watched him. I forget what outlet brought him in and had him dissect like free climbing video, like shots from movies, including mission. I Gospel watched that too. too. It's hilarious. I love that. Cannot, it was cannot great. recommend that. It was high. a great video. Yeah, that was a great video. Uh, I was dying laughing and you know, it's when you see the documentary or if you've watched interviews with him, you'll, you'll know his deadpan delivery works. I think it works particularly well for these scenes when he's talking about climbing uh, in these other movies. It is really great, but I just, I loved it so much and I can't recommend it highly enough. And, you know, props to my friends who saw this movie when it first came out back in like September, October, yeah. like, have you seen this movie? Why haven't you seen this movie? You need to go see this movie. I, I ignored them and never saw it in theaters but I watched it the night before the Oscars and I felt like a complete idiot for not having gone and seen that in theaters. But I think it actually is showing in a couple theaters around Boston now. So if I do have the time, which I probably won't, I might go rewatch it on, on the big screen. 
Yeah, I mean, I think there's a legitimate point that this might have been in my top 10 had I seen it, you know, last year. I It's really that good for me. Yeah, I dropped it on number 14 on my list from last year. Nice. Yep. Really, really great doc. Uh, all right. Yeah. So, you know, Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse free solo taking home the animated feature and the documentary categories. Uh, next, I have to say, you know, I got to give a nod to Spike Lee, you know, getting his first Oscar after so many years as being, you know, if not an auteur, then a revered personality in in the movie directing space. And he didn't win for best director, of course, but he did win for best adapted screenplay. Uh, what did you think about him finally getting his award? Yeah, obviously one of the one of the best moments of the night. Kind of like the way Roger Deakins win was last year. You know, someone who has been a, a longtime uh, you know member of the the film community, a long time thought of in high regard, but, you know, never got to walk up those stairs, um, finally getting his chance. And, you know, the audience responded accordingly by giving him a standing, standing ovation, which, which I think he earned. It was, it was really crazy to see how nervous he was on the stage though, because like he's someone who always, you know, seems very confident in in whatever he does, he has a very unique swagger about him. Um, So it it was kind of crazy to see him struggling to read his speech you know, his written speech that he had. But I think that, you know, that just shows, I guess, what the Oscars still mean. As much as we may deride them, they they still mean a lot. And I think, it, you know, it means a lot that Spike Lee now has one. Uh, definitely one of the signature filmmakers of our time. Yeah, if nothing else, it's a medium for validation that your work has value. And that doesn't mean that he thought his work was valueless until he won an Oscar, but it still means a lot because, you know, even, even if you have the, you know, the utmost self-confidence in your, in your work and you, and you don't necessarily seek out the validation of the Oscars when you do get validated, I can understand how that's a powerful moment for an individual. Yeah, absolutely. And if it, it goes without saying, uh, cause I hadn't said it yet, but uh, very much deserving. I think that black Klansman was an outstanding movie. Scott, we've talked a couple times about how I wasn't necessarily struck by this movie on a first watch, but when I went back and watched it a second time, it, it hit home even harder on a second viewing and really resonated with me. And, you know, I, I best adapted screenplay for my money. You know, this, this was a tough category in my opinion. I don't know if I, to be honest, if I would have voted for black Klansman personally, but I am all for Spike Lee winning an Oscar. And so I, I really have no complaints about this. Yeah, same. Awesome. So other other winners, uh, you know, you, of course, uh, actors of and actresses of color taking home the supporting actor and actress category. You have Mahershala Ali winning his second best supporting actor award. And then Regina King taking it home for best supporting actress, Scott. Uh, both of these uh, two actors and uh, well, actor and actress, I should say. Uh, they are, you know, revered status in the industry, particularly Mahershala Ali. And, you know, the, these people are, you know, I, again, I don't know if I would have voted for Regina King in the Best Supporting Actress category. Of course, the person I would have voted for wasn't even in the category because Elizabeth Debicki was not nominated. But Mahershala Ali, you know, he's he's a force in the industry at this point, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I yeah, again, like I'm with you that I think that we we if we were picking the nominees, we we probably would have thrown some other people in there, gone with some other people in the end, but you could certainly do a lot worse than both of these performances. I mean, I definitely think that Mahershala Ali's performance was the best thing about Green Book, and Regina King certainly did have some powerful scenes in Beale Street, so no qualms whatsoever with two very much expected wins. 
Yeah, absolutely. And you know, one win to just kind of round out our last kind of notable things here. That so that was a surprise, I think, because of how award season had gone so far. Was that Glenn Close? You know, on the seventh try, does not get her Oscar. The Academy goes a different direction and and said picking Olivia Coleman for the favorite. And you know, so I think there's been a lot of talk for those of 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 us who are you know covering the Oscars and and really tracking you know who could win, who should get nominated, even if you go back a couple months. Where you would have you would have guessed that Olivia Coleman would have been nominated in the best supporting actress category, and then you would have had Emma Stone and Rachel Weisz in the best actress category. But no, they push Olivia Coleman for her role as Queen Anne and the favorite into the best actress category, and you know she pulls off the upset of Glenn Close and you know even Lady Gaga. Uh, I think that I don't know ultimately if Lady Gaga was favored more so, especially after the BAFTA awards where Olivia Coleman did take home the prize there. But the, it, certainly Glenn Close was the favorite, but the favorite's actress Olivia Coleman comes out on top here. Yeah, I mean, it was definitely an upset. I mean, uh, you know, we did say on our prediction special that we thought if anyone could steal it from Glenn Close, that it would be Olivia Coleman. But, like, I, I think both of us thought that that was, you know, a, a bit of a far-off possibility. But I, I do just wonder if it came down to people having not seen The Wife because it was nominated for, for one award and, you know, came out halfway through the year, really. Like, it, I guess it was in the early fall that it kind of came out. But uh, I just wonder if people kind of push this down on, on their list since it wasn't nominated for anything else and never really saw it. And, and that's what led to Olivia Coleman's win. Yeah, maybe. And it also could just go back that the acting in the favorite, I think, ultimately was outstanding. Right. You have the three you have yeah. the three lead women. And then you also, have, of course, have Nicholas Holt in there as well. And, and I almost view this as an award for the for the, the cast of the favorite. And of course, Olivia Coleman takes it home. And, and I say deservingly so her performance was was fantastic. But the entire cast performance was fantastic. And so to see an award go to acting for the favorite, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I, I do wish that Glenn Close had gotten her Oscar. I do think that it was an Oscar worthy performance in spite of what some critics have said. But I, again, if, if someone else is going to win it, uh, this category was absolutely loaded. And I don't think I would have been displeased if any one of these five women had won it. Yeah, no, I, I I agree. Awesome. All right, moving on to the losers, Scott. Uh, some of these will make us happy that they lost out. Uh, one of them, at least, will not. But we we'll might as well start with the one that will make us happy, and that's Vice. Uh, only picking up one award, I believe it was, for yes. best uh, makeup and uh, hair design. Uh, you know, I predicted best makeup and hairstyling. I don't know why I messed that, <laughs> that award name up. Best makeup and hairstyling, Greg Cannon, Kate Bisco, and Patricia Dehaney winning for Vice. Scott, I predicted this. I'm not surprised. I know that you thought it might go the way of Mary Queen of Scots, but uh, what did you think of this outcome? If only they could have put enough makeup on the whole movie to make it actually worth watching. Well, you can't put enough lipstick on a pig to make it not a pig. Yeah, I'm not sure there's enough makeup in the world to, that would have accomplished that. But, you know, I did end up picking Vice in the end. So whoop de doo for them. I mean, at, le- at least they didn't win anything else. Yeah, and I know that on our prediction special, we did both. I think we did both say Mary Queen of Scots, but by the time I was filling out my ballot, I was like, no, there's no way Vice doesn't win this. Same, yeah, yeah. same. Yeah, well, it doesn't win anything else. You know, kind of the the biggest loss probably coming in the in the best actor category for Christian Bailey probably had the best chance of winning an award. Maybe yeah. you could say film editing had a chance, but I just mm-hmm. think it's Vice is just such a mess in my opinion, and I think that the Academy fe- felt similarly, maybe not as strongly, but. They felt similarly enough to not pick it for anything else. Yeah, and I certainly don't have any complaints about that. Awesome. You know, we did talk about Olivia Coleman winning for the Best Actress, but I still think the favorite with 10 nominations comes out a big loser on the night. Scott, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, 
Uh, you could definitely say that. On the other hand, like I don't think that I really thought it would win anything. So I think you could you could say Olivia Coleman's win was kind of a a win for everyone involved with this film. It did get ten nominations, which obviously makes it a very accomplished film. So yeah, you know maybe original screenplay. You, you thought maybe they had a good chance there, but probably not as big a loser as some others because they did pull off a major upset. They put off a major upset in the actress category, but I do think that best costume design, you have to say, again, Black Panther might have been the favorite. I don't actually know the odds. I picked it. I picked it for production design as well. But the favorite had a very good chance to win those two categories. I think it had a very good chance to your to exactly what you're saying here to win the best original screenplay. In fact, I might have even voted for it for best original screenplay personally. So, but you, you know what I mean? So I think that it was it was in the running at the very top for like four or five categories here. And to only come home with one of them, I'm not saying that I think that's the wrong outcome. I'm just saying, I think that there are going to be some disappointed people uh, over at Fox searchlight. Yeah. I mean, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah. And the final big loser and, you know, maybe the biggest loser besides vice is a star is born. Of course it wins for shallow. It wins uh, that win for lady Gaga, Mark Ronson, Anthony Rosamondo and Andrew Wyatt for that song unsurprising it's got that have been a huge upset if something like all the stars uh, were to upset it but it fired blanks in every other category again i'm not saying that it's a surprise that it fired blanks in the other categories i don't think that bradley cooper was really in tight consideration for best actor much to my chagrin it didn't even get a best director nomination uh it didn't it didn't really i think have a chance in adapted screenplay or anything like that so ultimately it's probably wasn't in the running for a lot of awards. So this, this is why I think it's ultimately not as big a loser. But if you think about this movie in the conversation for being best picture a couple months ago and just kind of, you know, whimpered to it, to its, uh, to its death in terms of an Oscar Oscar category or sorry, an Oscar uh, winning performances here. Yeah. I mean, we see it every, almost every single year. There's always a movie like that comes out around the same time as star is born. And everyone says, Oh, there it is. There's your best picture winner. I mean, I'll use this example because it's obviously a movie that I love, Boyhood. I think everyone felt like that was the front runner when it came out. And then for whatever reason, you know, people, you know, maybe it's the recency bias thing that we always talk about. It faded from people's people's minds. And and by the time, you know, it actually came around to, you know, to vote for the Oscars, which was what I mean, five or six odd months after A Star is Born got released. You know, it probably just wasn't fresh in people's minds and and they went elsewhere. But, you know, it's a shame because it was in my top 10 of the year. I know you loved it even more than I did. And uh, it it definitely deserved recognition. But I I guess it just it just fell victim to that uh, that one as being that one movie. I mean, I guess you could say kind of three billboards had it last year. But, you know, that did end up taking home some awards, obviously. Yeah, I think Star is Born is probably just comfortably third or fourth best in so many of its categories. Then that doesn't win you Oscars. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. Yeah. And you, but you're right. I, I did love this movie. It was my number three from last year uh, in a tight race for number two with, with a Spider-Verse. Of course, Spider-Verse came out one step ahead of it there. I have I have reconsidered that decision several times. I think ultimately it probably was the right decision. But there are so many parts of this movie that I, I love. And I, I know there are critiques of it and some people disagree with my take on on the movie and think it's fairly unoriginal and and not that uh great of a performance from those people involved but i just disagree i think it's a great movie um i am sad it didn't take home any more awards besides the award for shallow but not surprised disappointed but not surprised yeah absolutely well scott uh anything else you want to talk about i guess i guess the i can't speak to this but might as well ask you to as our sort of wrap up here for the oscars and how was having no host for the oscars this year 
I think other award shows are going to start considering having no hosts because although the show did not run like gra- drastically shorter than it has in the past, it felt like it was a lot shorter because you didn't have, you know, the host butting in with the monologue and jokes and stuff like that. It felt like it, it went by a lot quicker. And, you know, another thing, like in general, I think everyone just seemed to be enjoying themselves, which is not something that you really see with the Oscars a lot. I mean, the the presenters were having a good time. Like you didn't get the sense that they were just up there, you know, reading off their script and, and you know, re- trying to get back to their seats as quickly as possible. And so, you know, I, I do wonder, I, I think it did lead to a more enjoyable viewing experience overall to the point where, you know, I tweeted out for best picture that I actually thought it had been a good Oscars. So I think it's definitely something that they're going to consider for the future because I think, you know, the presenters themselves, you know, they, they were fine in terms of serving the comedy that, you know, I guess you want to, to lighten up the proceedings a little bit. I didn't feel like we were we were missing a host or, you know, a monologue at the beginning. Yeah. And you say that it didn't run significantly shorter, but it ran a full half hour shorter than you know the last few years. I think so the last few years have been okay. three around three hours, 50 minutes. And this one was comfortably at three hours, 20. And so, I mean, that's a full half hour difference. And they didn't have to cut a single award from the broadcast for it. Mm-hmm. I was just about to say that they didn't have to cut a single award. So there you go. You know, everything. There you go. Yeah, everything I've heard is that this is the direction the Academy should go in in the future. I again, I didn't get the chance to see it with my own eyes, but everything I've heard, I'd be totally fine with. You know, if if I do get to watch the Oscars next year, if it does work in my schedule, uh, seeing it without a host, because you know, yeah, I think that a couple hosts in the past few years have been good. I've enjoyed them, but it's not going to bother me. I don't think to not have a host. Unless they got Aquafina to host, I think I'd probably be against having a host. I just think that in general, like if you do have a host, you you I think it's okay to diminish their role. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like I don't think we need a ten minute monologue at the beginning. Like, the, like I said, I think the presenters, like themselves, they were fine in terms of serving the the comedy to lighten up the proceedings. Like, you know, maybe just someone to sort of officiate, kind of, kind of like they have at the Grammys. Like the Grammys just has a host. But they don't really do anything like in terms of they they really just come on stage every few minutes to introduce another performer. They're kind of just there to to tie everything together. So maybe that's something the Oscars could think about. Yeah. And uh, at the end of the day, I don't even think they need that just to circle back around. But that's it. There's yeah. the Oscars uh, 91st annual Academy Awards in the bag. That's our review of it. Um, you know, let us know what you think in the comments, whether you disagree that Green Book is the greatest movie of all time. I don't know if it'll be considered as bad as Crash was the winner back uh, what, a couple, what, 12 years ago, 15 years ago? I don't even know what it was. 2006. Yeah, a lot of people were comparing the two wins just because I think tonally the movies are similar, but Green Book is a better movie, I, I, I have to say. Yeah, I don't think it's going to be, I don't think history will view it as negatively as that movie, but maybe it'll be in the in you know the bottom half of Oscar winners. Who knows? Only time will tell. But let's take a short break, and when we come back, we'll be directing our gaze forward and talk about our most anticipated movies of the coming year, 2019. We'll be back in a second. Welcome back to part two of today's episode of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, as I already mentioned right before the break, we're now turning our gaze forward to 2019, and we're repeating a segment that we did last year on the podcast that I really, really enjoyed, and that is our most anticipated movies of the year. Why don't you get us started with some honorable mentions before we jump into our top five? 
Yeah, so a couple of movies that didn't quite make my list. The first one is a movie that will probably, you know, sound familiar if you're a longtime listener of the show, and that is a movie called Under the Silver Lake. And a reason that it will sound familiar is because it was my number one most anticipated movie of last year. And as it happens, we're still anticipating it. it, it the release date got pushed back. Not, Don't exactly know why, but it, it has played at some festivals. Um, it, it has a pretty, like well-rounded critics uh, consensus at this point. But the reason I'm anticipating this movie is because it comes from uh, the director, David Robert Mitchell, who made one of my favorite movies like of the decade. It follows amazing horror movie. Uh, and really like his directorial style was one of the best things about it. And w was so striking. And this is his first project since, uh, since it follows. And he's also reunited with uh, Mike Jalakis, the cinematographer who did such a amazing work with it follows as well. And this movie has been compared to like David Lynch, Mulholland Drive type feel, which I mean, I'm obsessed with Mulholland Drive, amazing movie. Uh, so, uh, you know, it adds up to a lot of things I should like. Andrew Garfield, Riley Keough, Topher Grace among the cast. So it's coming out next month. So we'll finally get to see it. Yep. You know, it was pushed back twice. It was your most anticipated movie. I felt bad for you every time I saw it get pushed back, but probably ultimately for the best. It was a pretty, it was originally supposed to release, I think in like June of last year. That sounds, I think that sounds right. So yeah. that probably would have been an okay time for it to release, but then it got pushed back to the first week in December and it would have been up against spider verse and like every mm. other December release that uh, right. did really well at the box office. So probably for the best that once it got pushed in December that I got pushed this year and it's the week before infinity war. So, you know, that's going to be a pretty dead time. I believe I, I don't actually have our movie release calendar in front of me, but I think that what's it called? Like, uh, Oh, I think Hellboy's coming out the week before, but I think under the silver lake and Hellboy have very different crowds. Yeah. And then maybe the curse of La Llorona is coming out that same weekend. But again, very different crowd. I think. From, from that and then of course it also looks coming terrible out. curse of la llorona yeah uh, i mean i'm not a horror guy i'm not gonna go see that movie but yeah, yeah it, it'll have a full week before infinity war no, i mean not that there's that much overlap but it'll be a pretty dead weekend and maybe you can get a few people who you know like david robert mitchell to go out and see uh go out and see the movie because you know he's I feel like he has a, a decent following in terms of fans albeit maybe small following nice pun yeah you're welcome that was for you i actually <laughs> did intend that by the way oh good <laughs> Yeah. Uh, anyway. Yeah. So Under the Silver Lake finally coming out. It, it's gotten mixed reviews so far, but it hasn't really released at a, to a wider audience yet. So we'll see if that changes. Yeah. It seems like the kind of movie which might be like a cold hit. So the, the middling critic scores don't scare me. Cool. Yeah. My first honorable mention before we jump into our second ones and get into our, into our top five, Spider-Man Far From Home. Scott, it, you know, this movie just missed out on my top five anticipated list. If if not for Avengers Endgame, which spoiler alert will come up in my top five list somewhere, this movie would probably be more anticipated. But it's just so hard for me to think past Endgame right now. And my I'm, I'm laser focused on that when it, when in terms of superhero movies in the MCU particularly. Uh, but this movie is going to be great. I, I really like the first trailer and I love, of course, and I think this is something that you love too, that Jake Gyllenhaal is in this one, getting him in a superhero movie. I think it's going to be really freaking awesome to see, to see him and also to, to see uh, Tom Holland as Spider-Man back so quickly because, I mean, we assume he'll make some appearance in game, even though he has been snapped out of existence as of right now. Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously this has a high bar to hit with Spider-Verse having just come out recently, but I mean, Spider-Man Homecoming was great. And you're right. The addition of Jake Gyllenhaal can only make the movie better, in my opinion. Absolutely. All right, Scott, what was your second honorable mention? Uh, my other honorable mention is a racing movie, actually, called Ford versus Ferrari. Um, this is the story of a battle between, you guessed it, Ford and Ferrari. Um, 
at the uh, Le Mans Grand Prix in 1966. I'm, I, I, you know, put this movie down for a number of reasons. Uh, I'm not like a huge racing fan, but I do love the movie Rush that Ron Howard directed from a few years back. Formula One movie starring Daniel Brühl and Chris Hemsworth. So if it can, you know, capture the feel of that, then I'm here for it. But and it certainly seems like they can. Good people involved. James Mangold directing, of course, known for various X-Men movies, including Logan, um, 310 to Yuma, stuff like that. Uh, Matt Damon also starring alongside uh, Christian Bale in this movie and John Bernthal playing Lee Iacocca. So a really strong top three there. And uh, and I think this should be uh, a crowd pleaser. Yeah, it'll be interesting. You know, obviously, Logan, I, you know, a movie that I loved and, and thought that, you know, that might be the movie that would break the superhero curse if there was one. But it, it only really rose to the top for its best adapted screenplay nomination. But then, you know, I feel like James Mangold, as much as I liked him for Logan, he's been very hit and miss in the past. I think, you know, he he's done things like night and day, but then there's 310 to Yuma, but then there's the Wolverine, which wasn't, I, I think that's the really bad one, or I could be wrong. It could, it's either the Wolverine or Wol- or like Wolverine. One, one of them is bad. Yeah. I can't remember which one it is. Maybe the X-Men Origins movie. I don't know if he did that one or what. Yeah, X-Men Origins Wolverine. That actually might have been the really bad one. I yeah. can't remember. The point is, is that I feel like he's been very hit and miss. But if he cap, you know, if he captures the, the uh, I guess, the atmosphere uh, and, you know, the quality of Logan in Ford versus Ferrari, which he has the talent in the cast to do so, I think it could be really great. Yeah. All right. And the other one for me, which we're going to talk about a little bit later when we start talking about a few trailers, is Pokemon Detective Pikachu. Scott, I, you know, I think that this movie and its trailers have, at least for the first trailer, come out to like some mixed reviews in terms of it just being like, like, do we need this? What even is this? Why is Pikachu have it? Is like, why is Pikachu talking? Why is Ryan Reynolds voicing Pikachu? But Scott, after the second trailer came out this week, especially, I couldn't be more hyped for this movie. It's coming out two weeks after Endgame on, you know, on May 10th and just, you know, just a few months from now. And I think this movie could be really, really great. Like I'm talking about this could be movie like top 10, top 20 of the year. Yeah. I mean, I think everyone is pretty much on board now after the, the trailers. And that includes me, who is someone that literally could not care less about Pokemon, could not name five Pokemon, probably never watched the show, never done anything involving Pokemon. And yet I think this movie looks great. And I think it seems like you don't need to have that requisite knowledge when you go into it so i'm looking forward to it as yeah well. i don't think you do i think that um rob letterman is directing who i'm not super familiar with but i think that he's he he directed shark tale um is, is the one thing that popped on his resume <laughs> for me and did you know that or no no i didn't know that it's just not a movie that i have thought about in a long time yeah i think he, so i think he directed shark tale and maybe goosebumps a few years ago but i think goosebumps was his most recent movie but the point is is that you know regardless of who's directing at the helm here i think ryan reynolds is a great choice for this and i know people were like i just can't hear anything but deadpool but like i don't care like yeah. i love ryan reynolds and i think he's gonna be fantastic as this well what's supposed to be this like grittier darker pikachu character um of, of course it's important for those who maybe um unfamiliar with the detective Pikachu. It's a video game from actually uh, last year. It came, well, it came, it came out to the, in the U S about this time last year. And then it, it had already come out in Japan already, but it's adapting that that's sort of the story of that game into a movie. And it's, it's not, it is of course set in the Pokemon universe, right? But it's not the same. It's not like directing or making a movie adaptation of like Pokemon yellow or something like that. 
uh, you know, one of the original games. And I think that's where people, the disconnect, they're just like a lack of familiarity that detective Pikachu was a property that existed already and not something completely new. Uh, but I'm, I'm excited for it, Scott. Yeah. And let's not forget Pokemon 2000, the movie famously quoted by Herman Cain in his concession speech in the 2012 election. Is that, is that true? Yep. I didn't know that. Oh yes. Very true. What was the quote? Do you remember? No, I do not, but you can look it up. <laughs> I don't think I want to. I don't think you do. <laughs> All right, Scott. Let's just get into our top five on that note. Okay, so my number five, and, you know, I kind of did this last year. I, I took, um, you know, a, a slightly different approach. You know, obviously there are a ton of big movies that everybody knows about um, and that I am looking forward to as much as the next guy, Star Wars, you know, Avengers, uh, stuff like that. But I wanted to highlight some smaller films, which I think – uh, I'm really looking forward to as well, and which might not be on people's radars. And actually, I have to say, the strategy kind of worked out for me because last year, I believe, you know, some of the movies on my list included Eighth Grade and Can You Ever Forgive Me, which both ended up in my top 10. So yeah, it, it worked out and hopefully it does this year. And so I'm starting off with number five with a, a small movie that people probably won't have heard of called Little Woods. It is from a first time director named Nia DaCosta. And Scott, you know, I love a good Western, and this is what looks to be a good Western. And there is a trailer out for it. The trailer looks very encouraging. It looks, you know, pretty pretty dark and atmospheric. And uh, it stars two very talented young actresses in Lily James and Tessa Thompson, both of whom I enjoyed in films last year. And I think that uh, Nia DaCosta will be able to bring something different to this because it's not often that you see a female direct a Western, and it's even less often that you see an African-American female direct a Western. And that's exactly what you have with this movie. Uh, and I think it's coming out pretty soon. So uh, I, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I don't know what its quote unquote wide release will be. But Scott, I think I think you're right. It is coming out soon. In fact, it might even be coming out on the same weekend as Under the Silver Lake. That's what I'm seeing Ooh. here. Again, I don't know if that's its wide release. That might be a limited release there. So it might, unfortunately, it might end up in the path of Infinity or Endgame. If it if it doesn't tread if it doesn't get its wide release that weekend, but Scott, I'm on board. Tessa Thompson, Lily James, two act actresses that I absolutely love. Uh, James Badge Dale, whose name I don't think I've seen since like the days of 24, where he was like since he got his hand cut off in 24. Yeah, yeah. Spoilers, spoilers for season three. <laughs> Who of could 24. forget? Yeah, season three of 24, right there, getting big spoilers. Um, but yeah, he was Chase Edmonds in 24. I'm not familiar or as familiar with Luke Kirby or Lance Reddick, but. And obviously not familiar with Nia DaCosta, who literally doesn't even have a Wikipedia page yet. But she will soon because she's doing this and she's uh, doing another project soon. I think that will finally get her a Wikipedia page, maybe. Yes, the Candyman reboot, which uh, is being produced by Jordan Peele. I th- I don't know exactly whether this is going to be a sequel or a reboot or what, but it's definitely going to put her on the map, I think. I think it's I think it's a remake. Okay. so Or a reboot, whichever it is. I'm not, I'm not 100% sure. Who knows? Yeah, but not a sequel. Not a sequel. All right, Scott, moving on here. My number five, Scott, you know, this is a big movie. One of the biggest releases of 2019 easily just makes my list here. And number five, that's Star Wars Episode nine. I think that uh, Star Wars Episode nine, of course, the culmination of this new sequel trilogy that we've gotten the last few years starting back with The Force Awakens with J.J. Abrams. Of course, the series took a bit of a, a bit of a turn I don't know if I'd say for the worse, in my opinion, but the the certainly the fans or uh, at least a strongly vocal minority of fans really spoke up after episode eight in the direction that Ryan Johnson took with the franchise. But, you know, it was so but, you know, the, I guess the, the combination of Ryan Johnson, the reaction to Ryan Johnson's take on Star Wars in episode eight, as well as Colin Trevorrow's just absolute 
nuclear bomb of a film and the book of Henry, I think really persuaded JJ Abrams. And I, I, well, I should say first the, the head honchos at Disney and Lucasfilm into getting Trevorrow out and getting JJ Abrams back in because, you know, star Wars episode seven, I think it's like the second or third highest grossing movie of all time. And I think that, you know, with JJ Abrams back at the helm, some star Wars fans will probably be reassured that this movie will be more in line with their view of the franchise. And I think that it will recover strong. Not that episode eight did poorly. It just, there was a vocal minority of people, Scott, that you know, well, that uh, didn't like the film. And contrary to our personal opinions, because we both liked the movie, uh, I think episode nine will be back on track and really strike at the nostalgia that I imagine a lot of the people who were outspoken in their distaste for episode eight will probably be more satisfied by that. Uh, I don't know if that's necessarily for the best. And that being said, I I don't think it's going to be like a a cop out to those people who are a vocal minority. I just think that JJ Abrams is a more reassuring figure at the helm for everyone in the franchise. I think that I don't think there's any, I I mean, I'm not gonna say anyone, but I have not heard too many people being uh, unhappy with JJ Abrams being back directing this movie. Yeah. I mean, you know, this would have made my list if I had taken a different approach to the list, obviously a huge star Wars fan. And Star Wars Episode Seven: Force Awakens is my favorite Star Wars movie of all time. So, of course, I am thrilled to see J.J. Abrams coming back in. With that being said, I also love The Last Jedi. So I hope that that they they don't kind of like retcon The Last Jedi. Like, not that they would do that, but I hope that a lot of what happened in The Last Jedi is, is given, uh, you know, its, its justice in... Uh, episode nine by J.J. Abrams, and I think it will be. But either way, I, I'm very excited to see how this trilogy closes out. Yeah, there's definitely lots of plot points that I think are up in the air that, that maybe are particular ones. I mean, I think we can talk spoilers about episode eight here, but like Ray's parenting or parent mm-hmm. or heritage is a is a huge thing that a lot of the outspoken people who disliked episode eight didn't didn't very, like very much. And I don't think I'm concerned about them retconning that. I mean. I mean, maybe they will. I don't know. We'll see. I think that'd be the wrong move, in my opinion, because I actually thought that was a nice, actually a nice addition to episode eight, that not every person in the universe has to be, yeah. uh, you know, has to have the this Jedi parentage to be a Jedi, to be a Force user, right? I think that's a, a great message for the movie, personally. Yeah, I mean... And I hope they go that direction. As big as the galaxy is, there have to be more than, like, 14 people in it. So I think it's it feels right that you know, the reveal that we got about Ray's parents. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Scott, what's your number four? My number four is a movie that has been getting a lot of uh, social media traction this week. There is a poster that came out for it, and there's actually going to be a, the first trailer is dropping on Tuesday, I believe. And that is a movie called Midsommar, directed by Ari Aster, who, of course, had a huge indie hit last year with Hereditary, uh, you know, horror movie that even got some awards recognition at some, you know, more independent award uh, shows and a movie that while didn't crack my top 20 or 25, there was a lot that I admired about it. And it definitely suggested a lot of promise for Ari Aster. And I I'm interested about this movie because there's not a lot out there on it. Again, like I said, there hasn't been a trailer. Um, so I'm not sure, you know, is this going to be a horror movie? Is it going to be more of a thriller? Um, there's only just sort of a very brief plot description, but I'm on board because of Ari Aster and I'm on board because of the two stars uh, Florence Pugh and Jack Rayner. I just actually saw Florence Pugh in a movie called Fighting with My Family, uh, which I loved, and we'll talk about you know 
shortly, you know, soon on the podcast. But Jack Rayner, also someone that I'm a fan of from uh, his great role back in Sing Street a few years ago. And they're going to play a couple in this movie. And, you know, whatever that couple gets into, I'm here for it because uh, there's a lot of talent involved and it's A24. So I'm here for it. Yeah, I thought you were going to say that you were excited about Jack Rayner because you saw him on the basis of sex just a month ago, but you didn't mention that. Yeah, well, he he has a pretty small role, only comes in at like the end of the movie, but he is good in that. And also, Florence Pugh is going to be in another movie, which I'm about to going to mention soon. So yeah, no, I, I I saw that as well. But no, I I I'm not a big horror movie guy, Scott. Scott, if this is a horror movie, I probably won't see it. But if it's more of a thriller, if it leans into that thriller vibe, hey man, I'm it's so it's so weird because I'm such a huge fan of thrillers, but not that into just like yeah uh, straight horror movies. So. There's a sharp divide for me, but if it ends up on the thriller side, which I doubt it based on hereditary, uh, I would go see it, but we'll see. All right, Scott, my number four is the Joker. Scott, I talked about that. Uh, I'm laser focused on Endgame right now, but this is the one movie uh, in the superhero genre that also had my attention uh, coming up last year, getting announced, getting a lot more information going to be directed by Todd Phillips and written by Phillips and Scott Silver starring Joaquin Phoenix in that title role of the Joker. Uh, it's also going to feature Zazie Beats, which is my rising star of 2019 that I picked on the podcast, uh, f- you know, a couple months ago now or a few weeks ago. And she's going to be playing what, who I believe will be the, the love interest of the Joker of some sort. Right. I don't know exactly how that's going to work yet. And probably won't know until the movie itself. But then it also has a pretty good cast of of supporting roles because uh, this also includes Bill Camp as a, as a cop in the Gotham City Police Department. And, and you know, the cast list goes on and on here. But uh, th- those are the names that kind of popped off the list when I saw it. And this is just something that I'm excited about. I think this is the direction that the DC based movies, whether you call it the DCEU or, you know, whatever we're calling it these days, that these are the kind of the direction they need to take. They need to not worry about this kind of shared, like the shared aspect of their universe, not saying that the shared universe needs to go away, but they don't need to worry about, you know, getting their Avengers movie out. They need to focus on developing movies that are good based, you know, based narrowly around characters that are interesting. And then if it works out and they can get a good idea for a combination movie, then go that direction. But this is the kind of movie that I think will, will be more successful. And I think that I'm not going to sit here and compare Joker to Aquaman, but, the, but I think they are comfortable in that they are not trying to do too much in this shared aspect of the universe. Yeah, I, I hope so. And I, I hope that, I mean, you know, I'm a big Joaquin Phoenix fan. I think he's a very interesting choice for this role. And I, you know, I'm a bit skeptical just because we have gotten Jokers, several Jokers recently, but uh, I'm I'm optimistic that this movie can put a new spin on it. Yeah, and I, I mean, if I, if I do want to make a clarification, I think this has been explicitly said to not be in the DCEU. This is separate right. uh, DC film, and I think there's going to be a few films kind of like that that will be released over the over the next few years that they're focusing on. But I think you know the average viewer I mean, at this point, like. It doesn't matter whether the movie's in the DC or the DC. They just need to make movies that are good and and then start worrying about the universe aspect of it. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Awesome. What's your number three, Scott? Okay, my number three, also starring Florence Pugh, is Little Women. This is uh, a Christmas release based, of course, on the classic novel by Louisa May Alcott. It has, of course, been adapted before, most recently last year in a TV miniseries, but perhaps more famously in a 90s film uh, featuring, you know, Claire Danes, Kirsten Dunst, Winona Ryder, to name just a few. And this movie has just as much of a splashy cast. The four March sisters 
are being played by Florence Pugh, Saoirse Ronan, Emma Watson, and Eliza Scanlon. And if that wasn't enough, we also have Timothy Chalamet playing the role of Laurie, who is the love interest. And we have Meryl Streep as Aunt March and Laura Dern as Marmee, who is the mother. And so, wow. I mean, all you can say is wow. And if that wasn't good enough for you, behind the camera, we have Greta Gerwig, the director of Lady Bird, you know, one of the more promising debuts in recent memory. So, you know, I think you could look at this movie and say that it, it it's pure Oscar bait, but Greta Gerwig in particular being behind the camera gives me faith that it's going to be something so much more and that it's going to actually be, you know, a wonderful and hopefully, you know, original uh, rendering of this often told story. Yeah, absolutely. It's going to be great. This would have easily made my top five list if I hadn't known that you were uh, going to be talking about this movie. I think that probably people won't recognize Eliza Scanlon, but they will recognize Sharshi Ronan, Emma Watson, and Florence Pugh, Timothy Chalamet, Meryl Streep, Laura Dern. I mean, goodness, Scott, just to reiterate your point, this cast is loaded and Christmas Day is going to be a good day, I think. And people may recognize Eliza Scanlon because she was just in Sharp Objects, of course. Yeah, I actually have no idea how much traction that that got, but yeah, I mean you're right. Fair, she yeah. had a she had a she had a supporting role in that. Mm-hmm. Awesome. My number three, Scott. And well, you talked about Sharp Objects, so it's actually a great segue because this was the lead actress from Sharp Objects. Is also the lead actress in this movie, and that's the woman in the window. It's a mystery thriller drama coming from Joe Wright, and you know being adapted from the woman in the window by AJ Finn. So same name, novel, the same name. It's about an agoraphobic child psychologist played by Amy Adams, who witnesses a crime while spying on her neighbors, leaving her determined whether or not to alert the police. There's also another great cast here. Scott, that we were just talking about a uh, great cast. Yeah. Gary Oldman in a supporting role, Julianne Moore, Brian Tyree, Henry, uh, Anthony Mackie from the MCU, I think that this cast is loaded. This movie looks absolutely great, Scott. You know, and I think our listeners know by this point that, you know, Amy Adams is one of my favorite actresses in Hollywood. I'll go see anything that she's in. And I'm really excited about this movie releasing early October. It was close to making my list as well. I think Joe Wright is an interesting choice for this at director. He's typically known for making sort of period pieces. So it'll be interesting to see what he brings to this. But yeah, the cast alone has me on board and you know, after our, our, our considering our favorite movie of last year was a mystery thriller. Hey, maybe maybe this one will be the one this year. You know, I wouldn't be surprised, but you're right. This is a I mean, I don't know. I assume this is set in modern times, So this isn't a period piece, but hey, I mean, maybe we could be wrong. But you're right. No, Joe Wright, known for his period pieces, known for I mean, his most recent work, of course, uh, Darkest Hour with Gary Oldman. So, you know, familiar faces uh, connecting there. Anna Karenina, you know, back with Kira Knightley, which I think it. I don't know if it got nominated for an Oscar or not, but definitely got nominated for a BAFTA uh, atonement, pride and prejudice. You know, these are all very familiar uh, movies that he's done, but if this isn't a period piece, then yeah, this, this could be a different take, but Hey, I'm here for it because the cast is good. I've liked jo- what Joe Wright said in the past, even though it might have been a little bit different and I just, yeah, I'm, I'm ready to buy a ticket and go see this one. Me too. All right. Number two, Scott. My number two is the goldfinch. This is based on the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel by one of my favorite authors, Donna Tartt, um, an amazing novel and an amazing author. And that's primarily what gets me on board uh, for this. I say that because uh, the movie stars Ansel Elgort, someone who I have mixed feelings about, really disliked him in uh, The Fault in Our Stars. But I, I think he really, uh, you know, on the other hand, had a great turn in Baby Driver from a couple of years ago. Um, so... 
I'll be interested to see what he brings to the role, but it's, uh, you know, it's this, this movie is about the, the life of uh, a young man named Theodore Decker and, and basically what happens to him over the course of several years after he is, his mother is killed in a art museum bombing and how he, he en- ends up with some of the uh, paintings from the museum. And so th- there's sort of a, uh, a thriller element a little bit to it, but it's also a coming of age story in a lot of ways. Uh, Nicole Kidman, Sarah Paulson, uh, Luke Wilson, Jeffrey Wright, and Finn Wolfhard are among the others in this movie. And also getting me excited, behind the camera will be John Crowley, whose last movie I absolutely loved. Uh, it's called Brooklyn, starring Saoirse Ronan. And so, yeah, I, I really hope that they do justice to what is one of the best novels, best recent novels that I have read. And then Roger Deakins behind the camera. Oh, heck yes. Yeah, Ro- yeah Roger Deakins is behind the camera for this one. Heck yes. There you go. And, you know, Scott, this is one of those movies that if you don't catch it in theaters, which I'm not saying people should avoid it, but it is being produced by Amazon Studios. So it won't it'll, it might be something like Beautiful Boy where, you know, Amazon at this point is very committed to getting their full theatrical releases for their movies, uh, but then bringing them pretty quickly onto their streaming service after that three month window that you, the deal they make with movies with um, movie theaters is it's usually three months that you give them the grace period, but usually comes on the the streaming platform pretty quickly after. So, you know, you don't have to wait too long if you do it. You know, if, if times are busy and you're not getting a chance to go see this movie in October, uh, you won't have to wait too long to go see it on, you know, just on streaming services. Yeah. I think that's actually a smart play for Amazon because I imagine a lot of people probably read the book by buying it on Amazon Kindle. So they might see this name and want to watch the movie for sure. That's actually an interesting point. Yeah. You know, for me, Donna Tart, the writer of the novel, this is adapted from, I haven't read the goldfinch. It's a very long book. It's, I have, I have problems picking up long books these days, although I used to be very good about it, but I really loved uh, secret history. I wish they'd make a movie adaptation of that. Yeah, no, I mean that, that's the one, obviously the one that started it all for Tart. I mean, the thing about her is that her writing is so dense and like so great, but it takes her 10 years to write a book. Like she has, been writing for 30 years, but she's only written three books. And, but I mean, the secret history, probably the best among of the three, but I, I do love the goldfinch as well. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think that may, maybe, maybe that if this movie is successful, that will spawn, you know, a strong desire in people to see an adaptation of another book. And I think if they were going to do another one, they probably would do the secret history. Cause I don't think, correct me if I'm wrong, Scott, I don't think the little friend was nearly as popular. Yeah, I think that's yeah. I, I mean, I would agree with that. And honestly, the secret history, like, it would make a great movie. Like, it's very cinematic. Like, I'm I'm really surprised they haven't tried it before. But again, like, because Tard is such a great writer, it's hard to know whether they'll be able to do justice to the book. But I, I'm open to seeing them try. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that I might actually benefit from not having read The Goldfinch. If I'm just going to be brutally honest, I mean, that book is so long. There's no way that even a three or four hour version of the of the book in in movie form. Maybe I don't even know if that would do justice to it, Scott. You you're a better judge of that than me. Yeah, I mean that that's true. Maybe like a mini series or something would be more appropriate. Yeah, but you know, maybe <laughs> who you know, ten years from now we might end up getting that mini series. You know, it's it's been done before. Yeah. All right, my number two, Scott. One of our you know, collectively one of our most anticipated movies of the year, and may, you know, maybe if we put our heads together and had to do one movie that we both would be most anticipated and share it, it probably would be this film, and that's Knives Out. It's a mystery crime film from. Ryan Johnson, who came up earlier, of course, when we were talking about Star Wars, and it's starring an absolute, you know, knock knockout cast here with Daniel Craig as a as kind of the lead role as Detective Benoit Blanc, and then in a supporting role you have Lakeith Stanfield uh, from Sorry to Bother You this year, and 
uh, nominated for BAFTA's Rising Star Award, losing out just barely to Letitia Wright. Then Chris Evans, Michael Shannon, Anna de Armas, Jamie Lee Curtis, Tony Collette, Christopher Plummer. This cast is absolutely insane. Uh, but right with Ryan Johnson directing, Lionsgate producing, written by Ryan Johnson. Scott, if you love Star Wars Episode Eight, you can't have anything but excitement for this movie. And you know, even if you didn't love Star Wars Episode Eight, I think that I mean, it's I think it's hard to deny that this. If you don't think Star Wars is Ryan Johnson's wheelhouse, this probably is his wheelhouse. Yeah, and I I mean, I'm really excited, too, because it seems like, from my, my understanding, that it's going to be sort of a classical, like, Agatha Christie-style whodunit, which I'm very much about. Um, I, I really enjoyed the Murder on the Orient Express uh, reboot that Kenneth Branagh did a couple of years ago. And so I... I I, I really love those kind of like drawing room mysteries and that's what this seems like it's going to be. And with a cast like that and with Ryan Johnson behind the camera, this is going to be great. Yeah. I, I just couldn't be more excited. It's coming out uh, Thanksgiving, November 27th, 2019. And uh, yeah, like you said, it's the modern take on the whodunit murder mystery and I'm here for it. All right. Most anticipated Scott, what you got? Yeah. For me, there was really only one choice and um you know, as much as I am, am anticipating these other movies, I anticipate any movie by this director, you know, tenfold. Like every time this director comes out with a new movie, it's an event, right? It's it's not there are very few directors out there who you can say that about. But this guy is certainly one of them. And that is Quentin Tarantino. And the movie is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. You know, this movie has been kept sort of. I mean, I guess you could say under wraps, like people on the set have really not been able to to say much about the movie, probably understandable. But we do know that it's set in the 60s uh, in Hollywood. The Manson family is going to play into everything in, in some way. I mean, for one, uh, Margot Robbie is playing Sharon Tate. So th- that should obviously be interesting. But like I said, this is this is all about Tarantino, right? His unique flair, like there's no one else who makes movies like Tarantino. This is his ninth film. I've loved every single one of his movies. Like, again, there's probably no other director that I can say, maybe Linklater, but that I I love every single one of your movies like that I've seen. And I think, you know, I I didn't love, I mean, The Hateful Eight wasn't my favorite, but it was still great. And I think that this is going to be, you know, very interesting. Stylistically, he hasn't really done a movie like, at least like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood looks to be before but I, I'm very optimistic either way. And, uh, you know, again, another movie, we, we, every movie we've, we've talked about has a great cast, but Leonardo DiCaprio, Brad Pitt, Margot Robbie, Dakota Fanning, Timothy Oliphant, Al Pacino, Kurt Russell, Tim Roth, Damian Lewis. I mean, the list goes on and on. It's going to be awesome. Yeah, it's absolutely wild. Absolutely wild movie. And I'm with you. Couldn't be more excited. I'm not as I, I will admit that I'm not as big a follower of Tarantino as you. I didn't actually even see The Hateful Eight. Didn't see My Speed. But Inglorious Bastards, Pulp Fiction, um, two movies that I've really loved uh, kind of all of all time, to be to be frank. And to, to see a film like this with the oh, talent yeah. that this movie has, if there's ever, you know, Tarantino movies that I haven't seen, uh, they certainly you know, it is me missing out, right? But you, when you have a movie with Leonardo DiCaprio, with Brad Pitt, with Margot Robbie, with all these actors and actresses that you've mentioned, especially now that I'm seeing so many movies, it would be it would be criminal for me not to see this. And uh, taking it a step beyond that, uh, I'm really excited for this. It, you know, it's not making my number one, but it certainly would have been on my list if it hadn't been on yours. Yeah, and a summer release, which is interesting for Tarantino. Typically, his movies are Christmas releases. I think the last one, uh, which wasn't, was Inglorious Bastards, actually. But, you know... 
that just means we don't have to wait as long. And of course, I'm excited for that. Yeah, absolutely. July July 26th right now is the release date. And knowing Quentin Tarantino, it probably won't get pushed because I, I actually think this is a really smart release date. Yeah. Awesome. All right, Scott, my number one, I've alluded to it earlier. I don't know if our listeners forgot about it, but it is my number one in terms of hype, which is the kind of the way that I approach this. And I understand that you approached it a little bit differently. Uh, Avengers Endgame is, is the movie that is getting me hyped the most is I, what I'm anticipating the most. I mentioned earlier that, you know, far from home making my honorable mentions list. I just really can't even think about that. I enjoyed the trailer. I, I'm happy that Jake Gyllenhaal is going to be in far from home, but all that I can think about is what's going to happen in game because yeah, like I've mentioned on previous podcasts, infinity war felt like the stakes were lower by the end of the movie when you had so many of the big characters uh, being killed off with the snap. But you know, you know that some of those are going to have to come back. You just can't fathom black Panther and Spider-Man not existing anymore in some way or form in this universe. And so knowing that some of them are going to come back makes you ask how many of them are going to come back. And the answer to that is going to be an end game, Scott. It's Anthony and Joe Russo back at the director's helm for this kind of part two of this Avengers uh, Infinity War end game double feature. Of course, Christopher Marcus, Steve McFeely, who have been doing the screenplays for so many of the biggest MCU movies of late. The cast list, you know, people don't need the cast list to be read to them to know what it's going to be, but you're going to see Robert Downey Jr. Will it be his last time? Chris Evans, will it be his last time? Chris Hemsworth, all these people it's up in the air. We said that about infinity war and we meant it when we went into it. And, you know, by the time of it, maybe we realized, okay, you know, this wasn't, this wasn't the end, right. For, for some of these characters, but now it really could be the end Scott. And, you know, maybe Marvel will not kill off a bunch of their biggest heroes, their biggest money makers over the past 11 years, but chances are they're going to kill off a few of them. Uh, at least in terms of going forward in the MCU movies. And no one has any idea what phase four really has in store, but no one's really worrying too much about it right now because in game just around the corner, a month and a half from now, uh, it's, it's going to be probably the biggest cinematic event. I mean, at least since avatar. And I mean, there all the conversation around is, will it, will it beat out avatar in terms of overall spin of the box office? It's a huge lofty target. It's over $2 billion. It's insane. It's an insane amount of money that avatar made, but the question is, will this movie do it? It's tracking for, I think the all time, uh, record for box office opening weekends. It's something like $280 million opening weekend is what it's projected for in the U S and if it hits that, that'll break all records. It'll just, it's, it's going to be an event Scott. And I know that is, you know, even though you're not as interested in superhero movies as I am, it's something that, you know, you, you're thinking about as well. You, we've talked about off air before. Yeah. I, like you said, I mean, I'm not as big of a, a Marvel or superhero guy as you, but of course I'd be crazy not to be a- a- anticipating this. Like Infinity War really did get me back in to a certain extent on, on the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And yeah, like you said, I think something's got to give in this one. Like some people, so, some people are going to die. Uh, like, I, I honestly, I'll be disappointed if, if uh, the stakes aren't, aren't very high because I think after Infinity War, they can only get higher. And so I, I think, you know, this is in a, like, like a Tarantino movie, this is an event. And even if I'm not as like big of a superhero guy, I love that there are still movies like this where, you know, as much as technology has evolved, as much as everything has evolved and so much is on the internet nowadays, you're going to have millions of people going out to the theater to see this movie because it's an event and it's all people are going to be able to talk about. And I think, you know, that's the power of movies. That's why we do this show. 
Absolutely. Couldn't be more excited about it. Uh, I've heard rumors that the runtime is currently sitting at three hours and the cut that they have. I don't know if it'll get shorter. I'd be surprised if it doesn't. But hey, you know, if Anthony and Joe Russo go to Kevin and Kevin Feige, go to Disney execs and go to the theaters and be like, hey, this is the story we have. We've been doing this for 11 years and we've never made a movie this long. But this is what this story needs to tell what we need to tell and to close all the loops that we need to close. That's what it is. And Scott, I don't think I don't think that runtime is going to uh, is going to deter people at all. Yeah, I mean, if this wasn't Avengers, it might deter it might deter me. But hey, I'm I'm in <laughs> I'm in on it, even though I, I'm sure I'll have a complaint about how long it is. Yeah, and and just to take like a from a business side of view, I think that you know if Disney got their way, the movie would be shorter. If the movie theaters got their way, the movie would be shorter. If anyone who's like making money off this movie had a say, they would be making it shorter because ultimately, if you look at a three hour movie versus a two and a half hour movie or a two hour movie, it, it's just in t- terms of just number of show times for a movie like this on opening weekend, you're gonna sell tickets to every single show time that you have, and so that actually could dramatically. I mean, it be. It would be interesting to see. Of course, we'll never know, right? We'll never know the the you know what the next best alternative would have been. But you wonder if you know if this movie is three hours long and it comes out and it slightly underperforms its numbers. You wonder how much money it would have made if it had you know thirty minutes been cut off, not because people didn't go and see it, but because you just literally couldn't sell more tickets to it. I mean, yeah, I I hear what you're saying for sure. All right, Scott, those are our most anticipated movies of 2019. It's going to be a great year. Scott, I know it was such a struggle at the end of last year to pick, you know, of the 60 to 70 movies that I saw last year. It was tough to narrow it down to that top 10, top 20, whatever that number was. And based on what I know is coming out and what we talked about today, it's going to be just as hard this year. Yeah, uh, it's it's going to be another great year for movies. Just I, I love making this list just because I get to go through the whole calendar and, uh, you know, see like just how much like how what an embarrassment of riches we're gonna have uh, i mean hopefully they'll all be good i'm sure some of them won't but just having some having something to be excited about every other week is you know again why we do this show absolutely and to kind of wrap up the segment scott you know to, you kind of teed me up really well for this we'd love to get your thoughts on what you think of you know of your top five and uh yeah we'll we'll exclude the honorable mentions for this, but of your top five what do you think is going to be the best movie and what do you think might uh come out on bottom well, least best. We'll call it least best. Maybe. Yes. As far as least best, I think the Goldfinch, again, just because of what we talked about, like the degree of difficulty is very high with adapting a Donatart novel. And again, Ansel Elgort is not is someone that I have mixed feelings about. So I think it has the highest potential to be, again, the least best on the list. As far as best, I could see myself being really blown away by Midsommar. I think, you know, all the ingredients are there if, if Ari Aster can... You sort of make the necessary steps that he needs to steps forward. He needs to after hereditary, then I can easily see that as, you know, in my top 10, top five of the year. But I think at this point, you know, I Tarantino is, is so reliable. Like he, again, he always delivers. He's Carl Malone. And so I think I'd be, I'd be remiss to say that I don't feel like at this point that Tarantino's movie is going to be the best because he always delivers. So I, I, I think for now I have to stick with once upon a time in Hollywood. Yeah, I thought it would be a coin flip for you between Little Women and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and I'm not surprised for you to have gone with the latter. Yeah, again, Little Women, you know, it, it's tough to know how much they can do with adapting a classic novel, but if anyone can do it, it's Greta Gerwig. For me, I think the least best is the best way to describe it, because I do, I do think all five of the movies that I've talked about are going to be really good. For me, I'm almost putting least best title on the one that I think is the biggest question mark, and that's The Woman in the Window. I just don't know what 
quite to expect yet uh, to, you know, we were talking about it already, of course, but Joe Wright uh, being the director, he hasn't done a movie that's not a period piece yet. That doesn't mean it's not going to be great. Uh, and some of his movies, to be fair, have been more popular than they have been uh, critically revered, so to speak. Uh, and so th- this could be the case of that least best. Again, I'm not going to say this movie is going to be bad. I, I really don't think that. But in terms of captivating, I, I guess my response would be it has the widest variation in my mind of what it could be. And so th- inherently that uh, unknown factor is what's kind of bubbling up here. It, I'm not I'm not here saying that I'm concerned about it, but it could be really it could be not meeting my expectations of a top five list of the year. But at the end of the day, it also could absolutely blow me away and be the best movie of, of the year for me. So who knows? And as for the best movie, I think for me, it's, it's going to be knives out. I trust Ryan Johnson. I loved looper. I know some people had some problems with it, but that being the movie that he directed before, you know, star Wars episode nine, obviously a long period of time between movies directing there. But I think that he's going to recapture the sort of interesting narrative vision that he often crafts in his movies, both in episode. I'm not in, excluding episode eight from that either, but episode eight in looper. I, I, th- I just think the stories that he tells to me are interesting. Some people probably find them. Um, I don't know, like art house, sort of like trying to do crazy things just for the sake of being crazy. But you know, I, I like it and I'm into it. And I think that knives out is going to be fantastic. Yeah, I mean, me too, again, probably would have made my list if not for making yours. All right, Scott, why don't we finish up this episode with some news? It's been a little while since we last recorded, so quite a few stories to run through here. We won't spend too much time on any one, except for maybe some of the trailers. But we, we heard, you know, of course, we mentioned earlier on in the in the episode, but The Irishman uh, is going to be coming out later this year, released through Netflix, directed by Scorsese, and, you know, every gangster mobster movie actor that you can think of is going to be in this movie de niro uh joe pesci you know, i'm not even going to bother running through the whole cast because it's crazy but what we did learn is that the first half of this movie is going to feature a completely de-aged cast got that's a one that's a shit ton of money for netflix to be spending on that sort of cg technology and kind of the other element that we learned about this movie is that scorsese has you know really campaigned hard for this movie getting a wide theatrical release and when I hear that news, I'm not sure if that means the theatrical release that Roma got, because it technically did get a wide theatrical release. It got a, a wide theatrical release in a lot of indie theaters across the country. But it didn't, of course, make it into Regal or to AMC theaters, who uh, are pretty adamant that their demands be met around the amount of time that you allow a movie to run before you post it on a streaming platform. So I wonder if Netflix will grant... When Netflix says that they're gonna they're gonna give Scorsese a wide theatrical release, if they mean that they will actually give you know AMC and Regal and you know whoever the I forget the other one it might might be Cinemark I'm not sure but uh, the, you know whether he, they will give them that that three month window and and what will happen there but it, this is one of those movies Scott that could be really good or honestly this could be a total stinker I yeah I I don't know I can't see it being a total stinker just because of everyone involved but you know stranger things have happened I mean if they do put it in theaters it's going to make a lot of money like you said this is like the gangster movie to end all gangster movies like everyone who's ever been involved in a gangster movie is here uh so of course I'm looking forward to it yeah, I, I do also think it's like even without Scorsese asking for it, I think Netflix is crazy enough to take this theater. This movie is so expensive. I think the production budget is something like 150 million plus on this movie. And I know Netflix has a lot of money from the subscription, obviously, and, they, and they've invested a lot of money and are still profitable. But I can't see them making 100, 
40. And I'm not saying they're going to make this in theaters either, but I can't see them making $140 million of subscriptions for the Irishman, right? Like I understand as outlandish as it is, I understand them paying a hundred million dollars to keep friends on their platform, but I just can't see them um, making, you know, I, I mean, they can justify, right? Cause it is, it is appealing to a different audience on Netflix. I just don't know how many people are going to subscribe to Netflix to watch the Irishman. I think it's going to be, a, it's going to be some, but it's not going to be $140 million worth. So I think it's, it's actually good business for Netflix at the end of the day to show this in theaters. Awesome. All right. Next story, Aquaman two and a spinoff of Aquaman called the trench are both in production over at Warner brothers in the DC, uh, either in the DC. I mean, I guess, yeah, they'd have to be in the DC EU technically. Not that, that again, not that I think that there's uh, too much weight to be given to that title any, anymore, at least for right now, but Scott, this movie made gangbusters at the box office. It broke a billion. Uh, it became the DC comics, highest grossing film, of all time. And Scott, I know that you weren't in love with Aquaman. I wouldn't say that I was in love with it either, but I did like it more than you. But what do you think of this news? I mean, I guess it's not surprising, right? After how well it did. I guess for me at this point, the interest level, because I didn't really like the first one is more just to see where it does fit into the overall DC universe stuff, because we did talk going into the movie about how this was, could be a make or break movie for, for DC in terms of, you know, the current extended universe that they have going on. So, you know, I, I am at least interested in seeing, are they continuing this? It like, is the, does the fact that Aquaman was such a success, like encourage them to continue the current universe or is this going to be something different? Yeah. And I think for the spinoff movie, you know, as, as disinterested as you might be with Aquaman too, just from the actual movie itself, again, I hear, hear what you're saying about its place in the larger context of the DCEU, but something like the trench, which I think is a more maybe horror focused kind of spinoff of, yeah. of Aquaman is something that I think that I'm, I would be surprised if, if you weren't interested in that. No, I mean, that's, that's true. That's a good point. Like I, you know, I haven't looked into it a lot, but I mean, I, I'm certainly, you know, I'm a horror fan, so I am interested in any sort of, you know, original spin that they can put on this is do, doing something different because I didn't enjoy Aquaman. Again, we'll see. These are, I mean, they, both these movies, I imagine, are at least two years out, if not longer. So we'll see. Yeah. All right, Scott, we've talked about Dune so much on the news portion of the podcast the last few episodes. And you know what? We're talking about it again because Josh Brolin has now joined, you know, the the Dune cast here. And it, it's just a, an embarrassment of riches for Denny Villeneuve uh, and in this uh, reboot of the Dune franchise. Yeah, again, I mean, I don't even know how much more we can say about our excitement level for this, but each name only amplifies it. And so, I mean, it's going to be a long wait until, what, 2020 uh, when we get this movie. Yep, it is actually, I mean, I think we got like some like tentative release date of like mid to or I think probably late 2020. And, you know, you and I were even surprised that it's this quick. We thought it'd be even longer. Oh, wait, that's true. It's still going to be a long wait, though, just because of how excited we are. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. All right, Scott, uh, you know, we, we talked about the Joker earlier and, you know, we've already been talking in the news section here about the DC of, you know, universe of movies, both the DCU and the non DCEU movies. And what we do know is that we got another update here and that Ben Affleck long rumored now to be out of the DCEU as Batman is officially out of, of his role as Batman. He will not be returning for that Batman solo movie. They will be recasting his part, which we don't know who they're going to be recasting yet, but Scott, I don't know. You never saw BVS. So I guess you don't really have too much to add about whether you liked Ben Affleck as Batman, but th- this kind of this news kind of came out with a whimper just because it's been so it's been rumored for such a long time that mm-hmm. Ben Affleck has been out. Yeah, I mean, from what I I do like Ben Affleck, but from what I've heard, it just seemed like it wasn't the right fit. So even you know not having really seen a lot uh, BVS or anything like that, uh, I 
did kind of see this coming. So I guess it's not surprising. And I'm sure that, you know, they're already floating a lot of other names for Batman. I mean, Robert Pattinson and Richard Madden are a couple that I've heard that could be interesting. Yeah, I I cannot imagine. I mean, this is like heavily biased towards like the perception of Robert Pattinson from like a decade ago. But I, I cannot imagine. What is it? Cedric Diggory. Or, uh, you know, um, I'm, I'm blanking on his Twilight character's name, being Batman. But I think that the fact that people are talking about him in this way, you know, kind of suggests that he's left that legacy behind for the most part. I mean, obviously, people are always going to associate with him, him with those movies in a certain way. But I think in recent years with stuff like The Rover and Good Time, like he's really made a name for himself as, you know, in the same way that Kristen Stewart has really saying – hey, look, you need to take me seriously because I know these movies are stupid, but like I'm a legit actor. Yeah, I mean, that's probably right. right? I, I, you know, having been so fresh off Bodyguard on Netflix and then also, you know, having seen the first couple seasons of Game of Thrones at the very least, I'm a huge fan of Richard Madden. I think he'd be great. I think he'd be great as the next Bond uh, whenever Daniel Craig does hang up the role. But, uh, you know, we'll see. I I would love Madden as Batman, especially if he can do a good gravelly Christian Bale performance uh, since, you know, he's got to hide his English accent, of course. All right, moving on. Uh, another another kind of, uh, well, at least superhero tangent kind of piece of news here, because although it's not related to a superhero movie, it's, of course, involving someone who is very well known for his superhero role, and that is uh, his role of Thor, and that's Chris Hemsworth, is going to be playing Hulk Hogan in a Hulk Hogan biopic, Scott. This, <laughs> when this news dropped, this was crazy. Yeah, I have to say, though, after listening to Collider Live talk about this, I don't know how much I'm looking forward to it because Hulk Hogan is an exec producer on this, I believe. And so, like, there's a lot of stuff in Hulk Hogan's backstory that is rather unseemly. Like, so I, I, I just wonder how much airtime are they going to give to this, to, like, you know, to the darker side of Hulk Hogan? Or, I mean, or are they just going to do sort of an airbrush, like almost Bohemian Rhapsody style biopic that really glosses over the reality of Hulk Hogan's life. So I think Chris Hemsworth is is a great and interesting choice for this role, but I have my doubts about the movie. Yeah, I agree. I think that it's, I mean, Chris Hemsworth, I mean, I don't even know if you could find someone to play Hulk Hogan, who's like a known quantity. Like if it's not Dave Bautista, who was an actual wrestler or yeah. Dwayne Johnson, who was an actual wrestler, which by like inherently, I think you just can't do because they were actual wrestlers. Like Chris Hemsworth is, is a great choice in my opinion, but you're right with Hulk Hogan as an executive producer on the film. I can't see this diving into the parts of Hulk Hogan's life. That is to your, to, you know, to use your word unseemly. I just can't see that happening. And I think ultimately that makes, I'm not going to say this movie is going to be DOA because it's not going to be interesting because of that. But an element that I would have been excited about uh, is, is just isn't going to be in the movie. Yeah. Sorry, brother. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I just think it's an interesting because of that. I'm just very surprised that Chris, I mean, I guess, I mean, I don't know. Chris Hemsworth doesn't need to take these roles. Like if the movie's not going to be interesting, I don't know why Chris Hemsworth is joining this. Yeah. I mean, so there, there is that side of it, I guess, but who knows, you know, how much they really know about the movie at this stage either. All right, Scott, moving on to some uh, movie announcements, uh, kind of in the vein that we've already been talking about here with Chris Hemsworth and, and Josh Brolin. Uh, we got some more news on Edgar Wright's next movie last night in Soho. Uh, you know, we've already talked about a Wright, uh, but this is a different Wright. Edgar Wright, who of course is famous for baby driver and a couple other movies is doing a very different kind of movie. It's going to be a psychological thriller. We've talked about it before already uh, for having on, Taylor Joy in the cast, but we added two new people to this cast in the last week or so, and that's Thomasine McKenzie and Matt Smith. 
uh, the former being known for her role in Leave No Trace earlier last year, and then Matt Smith known for his role in Doctor Who. Yeah, Edgar Wright is another name like Quentin Tarantino who is going to get me to the theater pretty much no matter what the movie is. And, you know, I I am obviously a huge joy as well. I love Leaving the Trace, so Thomas and McKenzie's name is appealing as well. I mean, Matt Smith is not someone that I have seen in a ton of stuff, but, you know, I know that there are a lot of fans out there. So, I mean, I'm, I'm very excited for this movie. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, moving on quickly from that, I'm excited as well. But uh, another movie announcement that we, you know, we've talked about this in the podcast in almost a hypothetical form before, but, you know, after its release and its success, would it get a sequel? We hoped it, I think we said that we hoped it almost didn't get a sequel, but it has been announced, Scott, it has been confirmed. A Quiet Place sequel is happening and John Krasinski will be directing. Yeah, I mean, if if you're going to do it again, at least, you know, at least you get Krasinski behind it. But I also think from Krasinski's perspective, almost feel like he should try something else because A Quiet Place was such a great hit because he did really make a name for himself as a director. I just wonder if like he is challenging himself enough because I think with the buzz that he got for A Quiet Place, he could do something, you know, bigger and and more original even. But, you know, again, if you're going to do a sequel, I mean, obviously you want to have him involved again. Yeah, obviously we have no idea what the sequel is going to entail. Will it be like an actual direct sequel will it involve Emily Blunt we don't know could it be you know another point in the timeline of this post-apocalyptic world that we see created on screen I personally hope they go that uh latter direction I don't think I need another movie following you know what Emily Blunt and her two children do next in this world uh, but it would be super interesting to see another another perspective on what's happening yeah and I think some of the early rumblings I I have do allude to it being in that latter category well, Scott, you know, you know, rising star of 2018, Michael B. Jordan uh, in talks to star in Denzel Washington's next movie uh, called titled Journal for Jordan. Uh, this is not a Michael Jordan <laughs> movie, just to be really clear. But Michael B. Jordan uh, will be playing a, a, a basically, I, I believe it's a father who uh, is off on a tour of duty uh, and, you know, just had a son. And that's going to be the role that Michael B. Jordan is playing. Of course, the, the, the father out on, out on a tour of duty and he, he's killed, but you know, in the lead up to that, he's journaling and creating this journal for, uh, for Jordan, his son. And that's what this movie is, you know, more details to be released. Denzel Washington kind of steering the ship on this one, Scott, it's not a flashy movie like we've necessarily seen Michael B. Jordan do before, but it does harken back to a movie that at least the emotional tone of a movie that I thought was really captured well in Fruitvale station directed by Ryan Coogler. Scott, are you excited about this? Yeah. I mean, I'm not the biggest in term fan in terms of war movies, but like having Denzel Washington on board and having the next Denzel Washington <laughs> starring in the movie, um, you know, I, I, I will definitely be going to the theater for this one. Yeah, I mean, you know, you know me. Uh, my butt's in the seat for Michael B. Jordan. Yeah, awesome. So, Scott, we were just we t- you mentioned earlier Nia DaCosta being a new director on the scene, and you mentioned that you know, yes, she's directing Little Woods, but she already has another project in the cooker, and that's with Jordan Peele as a producer for Candyman. She's going to be directing the Candyman reboot, remake, whatever it might end up being. She's directing that, and that has cast Yahya Abdul Mateen the second in the titular role as Candyman, who uh, you know is your one of your classic slasher horror uh characters uh being reboot here with the success of halloween although that i mean that's like a soft reboot in terms of being a sequel retconning a bunch of other sequels but you know i think that this is it, this could be the right time for this kind of thing we've seen some seen some uh high performing slasher movies in the last few years if they're done well and they and they strike a chord with the audience and then of course yaya abdul mateen the second 
is not going to be uh, the original Candyman, who I think a very iconic performance by that an actor whose name is escaping me at this very moment but he is going to be a known quantity from his role most recently in aquaman as black manta yeah i mean i thought that the the whole black manta thing was definitely a little undercooked but you know i i think that he's pretty well regarded and the original candy man is a pretty well regarded slasher movie as well tony todd is the person you're trying to think of I've never actually seen it, but it is pretty well regarded. And, you know, I really liked Halloween last year. So I definitely want to go back in and see the original Candyman and, you know, in preparation for seeing this one. And I'll be even more excited, you know, if Little Woods turns out to be good, because that'll say a lot about Nia DaCosta. Yeah, absolutely right. And, you know, even if Nia DaCosta doesn't knock it out of the park with Little Woods, she still will have Jordan Peele as a producer partner on this film. All right, Scott, Remy Malik, fresh off his best actor win in talks in final negotiations. If we're to quote uh, the story by Jeff Snyder here uh, in talks to play the villain for Bond 25. Yeah, I would argue he played the villain in this Oscar season. But um, I think that, uh, you know, obviously a very hot actor at the moment. Um, didn't love him in Bohemian Rhapsody. But, you know, I, I am not totally opposed to seeing him in other stuff and, uh, you know, with with Daniel Craig on board again for this Bond movie, um, I think you know may, maybe we could, we'll see a different side of him. You know, obviously that we than we saw in, in Bohemian Rhapsody because I think he could, I, I you know I think he could do a creepy role like somewhat well. Maybe I'm I'm almost thinking about what Javier Bardem did in Sky Skyfall. Maybe a similar type to something like that, but you know maybe he'll make it his own as well. So you know, obviously a name that doesn't strike his positive notes for me as, as it does for many others. But, you know, I'll obviously be seeing the James Bond franchise, you know, the next thing in the James Bond franchise. Yeah. And it's rumored that Lupita Nyong'o will also be joining the cast of this. I think this one's a less, less of a slam dunk uh, guarantee. It would be really cool to see her come uh, join this cast. Yeah, for sure. And then for those of you who might not have been following our news stories for this, Carrie, jo- Carrie Fukunaga will be uh, directing Bond 25. Yes. All right, Scott, last kind of bit of news story before we talk a couple trailers here. Will Smith is out. Uh, it will not be joining the Suicide Squad, will not be returning for the Suicide Squad sequel called uh, The Suicide Squad, which, of course, we've talked about being directed by James Gunn, uh, RIP to the Guardians of the Galaxy franchise after his departure. But, Scott, I mean, we've talked about the James Gunn appointment to direct this film already and, and our thoughts on that. But what do you think of Will Smith not returning? And, it, and I think it leaves a lot in doubt because Margot Robbie is also a question mark. Yeah, I'm not the biggest Will Smith fan. And, you know, that obviously Suicide Squad sucked. But, you know, maybe the best thing they can do is burn it down at this point and, you know, start with something different. You know, if if that means even if that means losing Will Smith and Margot Robbie, because, of course, we still do have Birds of Prey, which Margot Robbie is going to be in. Exactly. I've heard a lot of I heard one one take on this is that, to your point, they should burn the cast down and then only bring back Viola Davis as Amanda Waller, who's kind of the the yeah. linchpin of Suicide Squad in the, the kind of the arc anyway, because she leads that squad um, in terms of a, an administrative role, at least. So I, I think that that might actually end up being what happens if Margot Robbie ultimately doesn't join uh, return in her role because you're right she's as birds of prey and i think she's got a lot more creative direction she's not directing obviously but i think she has a lot more uh, freedom in that role and that's probably what she's looking for with her harley quinn yeah i would say so 
Cool. All right, Scott, I promised trailer talk, and that's what we're doing now. Might as well start. I want to finish with Detective Pikachu because I'm more excited about that. So why don't we start with X-Men Dark Phoenix? Did you see the new trailer for this? I'm not super like I've never been a huge X-Men fan. And like, I think some of the, you know, the like Days of Future Past, the whatever the first one was called, First Class, uh, they're they're solid movies. But like, I don't I don't see anything in this trailer that, you know, is is getting me excited. It is making me think that this is going in some sort of exciting new direction. Yeah, well, they're letting Simon Kenberg, who's written X-Men movies for a while now, direct for the first time. He actually wrote X X3 or X-Men 3, The Last Stand, which was the other Dark Phoenix story in this franchise that's already been told. And it, I loved seeing the comments on, on the YouTube video. People were like, oh, this looks like a very similar plot arc to like X-Men 3, The Last Stand. And they're like, well, yeah, Simon Kinberg wrote that one too. <laughs> so and I, what do you I expect? Think, and I really think that that's not a good thing for most people. Like, I don't think The Last Stand is is considered to be one of the the strong no, X-Men entries. I mean, if you talk about the core franchise, leaving out the kind of the or, the origins and the Wolverine movies, I think it's considered to be the worst movie in the franchise. To be fair to it, I didn't, I mean, I didn't like The Last Stand, but I think that this movie at least does look better. I don't think this, this trailer didn't wow me. This trailer didn't get me super pumped to see this movie when it does ultimately come out in the summer, but it, it was, it looks better than, than The Last Stand. It's going to be interesting. I, I, I saw some people joking about how this trailer just looks like, or this movie looks like it's just going to be killing off every character who has openly stated that they no longer want to be part of the X-Men franchise, including Jennifer Lawrence, uh, foremost among them. And I think that the inclusion of Jessica Chastain's character, Scott, who's this kind of unknown entity presence, I think she's an alien shapeshifter is how she's described in her role and who manipulates, of course, uh, Sophie Turner's uh, Phoenix. I'm forgetting the actual name of the uh, Jean Grey. Yeah. In, in this movie, kind of manipulating her, pulling the strings in the background. I think this movie, I think, is going to live and die in that one, you're able to capture sort of the the nostalgia of you know the these X-Men characters. So you ha- of course you have McAvoy, Fassbender, Nicholas Holt, uh, pe- people who have led the franchise for the most recent movies coming back. But I think this movie is ultimately going to live and die on that element, bringing back the nostalgia of that and appreciating those characters. And then more importantly, what this Jessica Chastain figure is. I'm assuming Simon Kinberg is not dumb enough to literally write the same story. So it's going to be at least is going to be similar because it's, it's the same story, right? It's the same comic book narrative, mm-hmm. but I'm hoping that it's a different enough take and it adds a, a, some new elements uh, of it enough to make it more interesting than uh, X-Men 3, the last scene and the way that that played out. All I know is I hope we get some more Quicksilver because he's one of my favorite parts of those movies. Yeah, he Evan Peters, he's in the trailer, so we're going to see him at least. We'll see if I don't know what his status on whether he wants to be a part of the X-Men universe or not. So who knows if he's going to get killed off. But uh, we'll see. Crossed. I mean, this this is the swan song for the X-Men franchise with it for Fox because Disney's about to take over and uh, it's going to be a different vision, maybe for the better, maybe for the worse. We don't know yet, of course. But uh, Hans Zimmer will be doing the score. If that's if that's something that might get you excited, Scott, I have no idea. Hey, this movie's coming out in June. I'm hopeful, but not optimistic. Yeah, uh, I guess I you could put me down in that category as well. Cool. All right. Detective Pikachu. The second trailer came out this past week. We're ending our episode with the Detective Pikachu trailer talk. Scott, we already mentioned briefly earlier how much we loved this, but I want to hear more from you about it. Well, I just think that in general, like the design of the whole world and everything seems really interesting. Like, I w- is there a name for what are they calling the city again? I can't remember. It's Rhyme City is what it's called. Rhyme City, right? The 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 design of the the world seems like it, it's definitely going to capture like what you were talking about earlier with like a you know sort of grittier feel to it. And yeah, I mean, I, again, I just think it, it looks it looks funny. Like I think combining you know the the Pokemon stuff with a crime drama is going to get people like me 
who would not otherwise be interested in a Pokemon themed movie to, to come to the theater. And also, you know, Ryan Reynolds's voice, you know, maybe the fact that he, again, that he is Deadpool, that people associate his voice with, hey, these movies are really funny. Maybe that, again, will also get other people like myself who aren't as interested to, to come out and see it. But yeah, I mean, this is never something that I would have thought I would have been interested in. But I guess to the trailer's credit, they've certainly won me over. Yeah, I mean, this trailer is absolutely gorgeous. The Pokemon, in terms of how their CG animate or CG uh, computer generated visual effects are just I think it's amazing. I think it looks fantastic. And I know some people have been like a little bit weirded out by it, but I'm I'm in, yeah. in the camp of this is freaking great. And again, you know, this movie is coming out in two months time right after infinite or two weeks after Endgame, And, you know, I I love that I get to go from Endgame, my most anticipated movie of the year, you know, probably watching it twice on back to back weekends just because it's in game and then going straight into uh, this experience with Detective Pikachu, which, you know, I think this movie really has potential to cut in to Avenger in Avengers Endgame's legs because this movie maybe I mean, we'll see how it ultimately does in the US. This movie is going to do so well abroad. I think if it's good, this could actually really hurt Avengers chances of, of breaking those kind of all time records that we were discussing earlier. Yeah, I mean, the trailers, as viral as the trailers have gone, you have to think it's going to do well, even even if it's not good. Yeah, no, I think it's still going to do well. It's just a matter of how well it's going to do, right? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. All right, Scott. I think that should just about do it for episode 32 of Some Like It, Scott. Before I give my normal wrap-up spiel, Scott, this is kind of marking the last episode, what we'll call like uh, version one of our podcast, where you know, we weren't reviewing. Yeah, phase one. That, that's actually <laughs> even a better way to put it. Uh, you know, the first year and a few and, and a few months, uh, we've had a model of the podcast that was very much uh, we have two major major things to cover on each episode. Usually, it's two movie reviews. This week, of course, it's the Oscars and anticipated movies. And you know, we've gotten a lot of really helpful feedback on how that is. People have been big fans of it. We also understand that people have been very intimidated by the runtime of a lot of our episodes. Of course, lately, we've been doing a little bit of a better job, I think, about keeping it under two hours. I don't know ultimately where this one's going to shake out. I think it's going to be pretty close, especially with my rambling here. But starting next week with the uh, release of Captain Marvel, we're going to be targeting a different schedule. Right now, of course, we're doing two movie reviews, uh, plus, of course, our extra stuff alongside that every other week. So, you know, two movies every two weeks. From now on, we're really hoping to shift more toward one movie every week. So we're hoping to have a less than hour long episode for you guys every week. Most commonly, we're going to be reviewing movies. Of course, there will be episodes where we're doing other things, you know, whether it's an Oscars review, whether it's a Golden Globes review, whether it's something something like that. Uh, we're hoping to, to switch to that schedule and that cadence. We, you know, we've already started our shifts and our changes earlier this year with moving our movie trivia Schmodown talk off of the main Some Like It's Got podcast and onto its own thing with Champ Slotch. We're also going to be moving our shorter reviews onto a monthly episode that, you know, we haven't really finalized that name yet, but think of it as sort of a rapid fire reviews. So we're talking here, all the other movies that we see over the course of a month that we don't cover in the main section of our podcast, those movies are going into their own podcast, getting bundled together, you know, five to 10 minute reviews and, and getting released separately. So, you know, some people may even favor that even more than our normal podcast because those are even shorter reviews uh, that, that we're giving over there. But then the kind of the core, the heart of Some Like It, Scott, is going to be that one movie review every week along with some movie news. And we're really hoping we can keep that uh, average runtime 
under an hour. Of course, they're going to be cinematic events that, you know, we've ta- some of them we've talked about today on the podcast, Scott, that might push us over an hour. Well, you know, whether we have and maybe there's a particular movie that is worth a lot of conversation that will push us over an hour. But our goal is to keep this movie runtime or this podcast runtime under an hour and make it more digestible, get more people on board, make people feel less intimidated by that runtime. And yeah, you know, some people may not be interested in every single movie review that we do on the show and might not listen to every episode, though, of course, we hope that you do. That being said, we hope that people will feel more comfortable pressing play on that podcast when they are interested in one of the movies that we're doing to get to get more listeners and and to have people uh, feel more comfortable just digesting it, even though it ultimately means for us, Scott, that we're, we're still investing the same amount of time in the podcast. We're just distributing it differently. Yeah, I'm I'm excited for this change. I think it's, you know, something necessary for the uh the growth of this podcast. And, you know, since we're entering phase two, we're also going to be introducing Ant-Man as our co-host. So I'm excited about that as well. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. You know, Paul Rudd, if you're out there and you want to become a co-host of the podcast, I promise you there's a spot for you. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm here for, it. I mean, look, the man never ages, so uh, he can, you know, outlast us probably even on the podcast. We'll see. That's actually a really interesting point. I feel like I watched him look the exact same in movies with Jennifer Aniston and the like in like the mid 2000s. Look at a picture of him in Clueless and look at a picture of him in like Avengers Endgame. Like no difference. <laughs> well, spot on. Maybe it's a secret of, you know, traversing the quantum realm, which I don't know yeah. roughly how big of a part it is of Endgame, but uh, hopefully not too much in my opinion. Yeah. But, th- you know, that being said, Scott, we're changing the podcast starting next week. We're both super excited. We've been talking about this change since the start of the new year. It's that it's that big change that we were we were teasing, we were alluding to, we were building up to, and it's happening starting next week. We're very excited. And uh, Scott, I think that will do it. You can find our podcast on Twitter. We mentioned our own Twitter handles earlier, but our podcast is also at, at Media Plug Pods. We'd love it even more, though, if you checked out our podcast Patreon page. That's www.patreon.com slash mediaplugpods. There are so many uh, different reward tiers over there, depending on how much you're willing or able to donate to the podcast every month, uh, and you'll, you'll get rewards for it. And uh, So check out, find the tier that's right for you that makes the most sense, and we'd really appreciate it if you helped uh, grow our podcast over there on Patreon. And again, that's www.patreon.com slash mediaplugpods. If you choose not to support us on Patreon, though, that's totally fine. You can still find us on Apple Podcasts uh, as well as on Podbean this year. No longer on SoundCloud, but Podbean. And and pretty much anywhere where uh, Podbean distributes the podcast or, or Apple Podcasts can filter into. So a ton of podcast apps that you can find us on. Where we'd appreciate it if you rated, reviewed us, and subscribed and shared all that jazz to, along with our Patreon, still reach a broader audience. All right, Scott, I've said enough. We really appreciate all of you for taking the time out of your day to listen to us chat about movies. We'll be back next week with our new uh, new format of the podcast. We'll be talking about Captain Marvel, the first Marvel release of the year. Brie Larson, we both love her. It's going to be a really interesting episode to see what that movie does, what Brie Larson does in that role coming off of, you know, her Oscar winning performance in, in the room, but we can't, we can't wait. Sam Samuel L. Jackson de-aged will be a fun one too. Oh yes. <laughs> All right. So Scott, uh, that that'll do it for us. Catch us next week with Captain Marvel and some news For now, however, that'll be all. For Scott Harvey, I'm Scott Shelton. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening.